0: <laughs> okay, um, welcome everybody, we're getting started a little bit late because we're in a new place. There was some uh, structural damage done at the church. So we're meeting over here. We might be meeting over here in this room for some weeks going forward, we have to see. But um, it's good to be back. I really miss the free school being away one week (laughs) a year. But um, I'm going to report on platypus. I was at the international convention. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the people that went to Memphis and Nashville and Fisk will report back on that. And hopefully, we will be able to to redo
1: Sorry
2: yeah. oh, to interrupt. You are your, your, um Karen Stewart.
3: Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay.
2: yes,
3: yes. You knew Karen,
1: right?
0: should I know Karen?
1: Yes. <laughs> I could tell
0: you. I story. yeah. They
1: often say. Yeah, that uh, well,
0: we'll talk. We're, we're just getting so. To... Please okay. join us. That's
3: what I'm asking
2: myself. Yeah, there's three of us. Now that
3: works
1: better. Emilia,
3: I think I
4: I used to have a jacket just
1: like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's very comfortable. It is
2: very warm. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very nice. great uh, I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I want to know. Okay, sorry. Uh, we're going to get started. Um, so, hopefully, we'll be able to continue our reading of the science of logic. I know everybody misses the fact that we we kind of were overwhelmed by world events and were therefore uh, unable to get uh, beyond the introduction, but hopefully we'll be able to return to it uh, today. But uh, the science of logic is on our agenda and uh, no one should think that we've abandoned philosophy. Uh, In fact, Having uh, been at platypus, uh, the platypus convention it, uh, now uh, I, I would say uh, philosophy is as important as all of us know it is at this time but uh, I have my For the college, Danny Eisenberg Jacobs. Or is it Jacobs Eisenberg? Eisenberg's way on to me. Jacobs, Danny. (laughs) Danny. (laughs) I don't don't know. uh, At Platypus, Danny is very talkative. At preschool, he's very very quiet. He's trying to be polite. Um, And I think part of the reason that I was invited to the Platypus convention is because of Danny and i feel that he sold me to platypus <laughs> and uh, uh going there because i did not fully understand what platypus was i i looked at uh, youtube videos
5: mm-hmm. and
0: i saw very very Erudite Marxist mm-hmm. and uh, fully understand Platypus. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that I do even now. Mm-hmm. It's a very complex project. Uh, so I arrived there, I, by the way, I woke up at Three <laughs> thirty, making sure that I didn't miss my ten o'clock flight.
2: You that's how anxious and nervous I was. So you're proving your old head, car. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So <laughs> I, 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 I was not late. I, I was there on time for the flight, uh, and of course, Philadelphia International Airport is such a mess <laughs> in terms of TSA. Yeah. Uh, Chicago O'Hare is far easier to get through than Philly International. I, I really, all of you guys that travel a lot, I feel so bad for you, you all having to go through Phil. But that's why you guys go to Newark and, and New York, okay? But anyway, so I, I arrived, uh, and. Um, Danny was waiting for me, but I had already gone through the, that's how much he was concerned and uh, ushering me through oh, everything huh. and taking care of me. Really great... <laughs> I was uh <laughs> <laughs> funny, so in a very anxious
6: moment in my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah. organizing
0: Yeah, but it seemed like you were anxious the whole time. You was just <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
6: So a lot of the work, yeah. Yeah, he so I was on the convention committee. So yeah, what the organization yeah. was me. And so coming to something like we have to start. We have to start with the
0: start. And and the other thing is that um, there were about three hundred people there. Yes. Yeah. It was a large group of people. Um, and it was at the University of Chicago and at Northwestern University.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, as some of you all might know, I went to the University of Chicago, and. The University of Chicago today is not what it was. Mm -hmm. The University of Chicago might be the premier university in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certainly in certain fields like philosophy, Mm -hmm. the business school and economics, Mm -hmm. the school of education, Uh, The School of Education, School of Social Welfare, Mm -hmm. and I understand they have a uh, Fermi-Atom Collider. Mm -hmm. And when you see it, but when you see the University of Chicago, you realize, whoa. And, um, you know, uh, Caleb and I commented, you know, and you know how rich University of Pennsylvania campus is. It can't compare to the University of Chicago. It is really something that's wealthy, reflecting the wealth of Chicago itself. And, you know, Chicago um, is a. I mean, you could literally study 20th century American history from Chicago. Mm-hmm. The labor movement, the black movement, mm-hmm. uh, the this intersecting of industries like steel and auto production and uh, le- electrical production and meat packing and warehousing mm-hmm. and railroads mm-hmm. and the center where of foodstuffs are brought to Chicago and shipped around the country. Chicago is no joke. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think you know New York blows your mind, if you understand Chicago, yeah. and it's a city built on a lake, yeah. which makes it, gives it a kind of a a grandeur and beauty. Mm-hmm. Although it is a city of tremendous poverty I mean tremendous which reflects the class exploitation the working class built this great city that they cannot enjoy it's it's really something to think about and having lived in Chicago I had a feel for Chicago that I don't necessarily think a lot of the platypus delegates have Especially, you know, let me tell you this when I and I mention this so often. I saw the Harold Washington Library. And I think that it might be one of the most significant public structures built in the United States in the last 70 years, 75 years. The size of it, you know, Penn's Library, everybody knows Penn. It's a pretty big structure. The Howe Washington Library, and I maybe I'm going a little too far, but it makes the University of Pennsylvania Library look like a, a, a neighborhood branch of the Philadelphia yeah. Library. <laughs> <I don't laughs> it I is just you know, that huge uh, in that library. And then there is uh, <laughs> a block away, a thoroughfare, I mean, at least one and a half times wider than Broad Street. Mm -hmm. You know, our largest Mm -hmm. thoroughfare here. Mm -hmm. Named the Ida B. Wells Mm -hmm. Drive. Mm -hmm. And when I saw these things, i wept. Mm -hmm. And I just happened upon them because they are, how could you say, monuments on the way to freedom. Not yet freedom, mm-hmm. but a recognition mm-hmm. that some people fought mm-hmm. and yes. fought hard. Yes. And in case you don't know, How Washington was the first black mayor of Chicago. He was um, he was elected in 1981, I believe. But his election ended forever the vaunted. Chicago political machine. It ended on this, yes, and Dale, this uprising coming out of the Black Freedom Movement. And Harold Washington himself is a man comes out of the left. And he dies, I think, in, in his third year in office, had a heart attack and died. And to his memory, they built this
5: huge
0: library an unbelievable structure, but that fits the public architecture of Chicago. In other words, everything is not new, 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 and tall, tall, you know. Uh, There's something preservative about the way they imagine, at least the downtown area. So, you know, um, and I'm at Platypus, and all of this, these emotions, these thoughts, University of Chicago, Chicago, the Black Freedom Movement, how it came north to Chicago mm-hmm. from places like Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee. Chicago is a blues city, mm-hmm. more than a jazz city. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But it's the blues yeah. in its uh, quintessential form. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's still there that way. Uh, but it's a poor city. The gentrification is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, blacks who live on the south side are pushed back and most out of Chicago mm-hmm. uh, or to the west side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a tale of at least two cities. Mm-hmm. So I arrive and Danny meets me. I'd go on. He, he was running around and he met me down at the baggage claim and he introduced me uh, quickly. Tony, I have somebody I want you to meet. I think you'll like her. It was a Platypus member who was uh, from Brazil, Brazilian, and she is um, at the uh, New School and she's studying Adorno. Uh-huh. Oh philosophy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, that's all I want to Okay. She's yeah. a philosophy student mm-hmm. and um, focusing upon Adorno. Adorno is one of those very important German philosophers in the Frankfurt School, mm-hmm. which arose in the 1920s mm-hmm. and um, attempted after World War One to continue the German tradition of radical thinking and Marxism Mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, And then Adorno, it turns out, and I had forgotten this, Angela Davis herself had done a master's degree Uh in Germany under Adorno.
6: You wrote her a recommendation. There's a letter kind of saying I recommend Miss Davis. For yes. stuff. And so last summer we did an interview with Angela Davis, yes. and we republished an essay she wrote for his class in the Black History Book.
0: I got a good yeah. idea. And and you know uh, you know all the time I've known Angela, and I remember in the biography, but I was you know just reading it so quickly that uh, she uh, but she never mentioned this, you know she didn't. Want to just, quote, celebrate herself and and really how brilliant she is. And I had, uh, just uh, leaping forward a bit, I was talking to this very, very bright and well-educated young man who had just graduated in philosophy at the University of Chicago. And uh, we were talking about Kant and Hegel, I was mainly listening, he knew so much. And uh, he mentioned, we started talking about Angela Davis and how Angela had done a master's degree with Adorno. And then he made the statement, which is a statement of a young person, by the way, that Angela made a mistake in, in choosing politics over philosophy. I said, no, no, Dane, no, no, she didn't. Sometimes that is the choice that you have to make and uh, so on, but it was very interesting. Anyway, so I meet this woman named Rosa from Brazil and we immediately were talking, 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 like like we had known each other for so long. We became over the course of the convention really fast friends. And because I would ask, Rosa, "Is what I said, okay. Yes, and if it weren't, <laughs> I would tell you. <laughs> so very, I mean very strong. You you meet her because she wants to come to the yeah, preschool. She right. said she'll stay yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But um and um but so that was my first introduction in Chicago to the Platypus Convention. And um so I'm getting more excited talking to her, listening to her. And so then we get uh, an Uber and we we go to University of Chicago. I had no idea it was at the University of Chicago. I'm kind of, uh, you don't know how out of it I can be. And so we arrive and, and the first person that I recognized, well, I recognized two people that I saw on uh, platypus zooms or uh on uh youtube i said oh i recognize you oh yes good to be you know that type of thing and then we go in to sit down the first person i see the recognizable smiling face of zayu <laughs> 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 <Just like, laughs> like, and i we're always uh, happy to see each yes, other absolutely. and we enjoyed ourselves together the whole time ian where's lou at? she should have come today She's, pretty busy with school. Okay. Yeah. okay, all right. She gets a bye. But he and Lou and myself, we had a lot of fun together. Really a lot of fun and a lot of discussion. But I see, I say, oh, wow. There's a... So we sat down. And now, you know, I'm getting tired. But I want to hear what they're talking about. Because it's all new to me. First of all, and I mentioned this to people, and in not, in, not in a put down way, but just a fact. I told them that I was not familiar with being in a convention of all white people like this. I was unfamiliar with it. Uh-huh. Not that I was put off by it, uh-huh. but today most, you know, things are more, I put, integrated, you know.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, There was only one other Black male there. His name was Daniel Webster, by the way. And it seemed, he seemed, I have to say, uh, a little uh, disconnected from platypus. Yeah, contact. There were two Black women there. And they were trans. Both of them were trans. I got to know one. There were two Latino women there are way involved. more than you know, a <laughs> you know, huh? There's a lot of, but, you know, yeah. A lot of yeah, but these seem to be, be you know, like from Chicago. From...
6: Okay, yeah. Well Pam yeah. would live in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But they were trans. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think the two I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but there are a few more. But there were others, yeah, probably so. But it was a um, majority male. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very, I mean, and and this is not, I'm not put off, I'm just just observational. Majority male, majority white of left organization. And I'm a lot of people from Germany, from (laughs) Germany, not Germans in America, but came from Germany, okay? Then a lot of Chinese from China studying at elite universities in the United States. No small matter. And then white Americans, and then I, I learned, you know, people from South America, uh, et cetera. But this, if you just looked at it, that's what you would see. There were, I think, two South Asians from Pakistan. The only Indian I met was from Cleveland, and he had just been homeless. So he's not an elite institution by any means. We rapped a great deal, but that was the only Indian. And when he told me he was Indian, I, I thought Native American Indian, because <laughs> I never knew of an Indian, you know, Indian from India that had been homeless. But we had a great He asked me about Jack Odell, by the way. But so, and the first panel that I'm listening to, and I'm trying to listen because this is a different experience for me. And I'm listening, and the first panel, who was it? it was with Nadir and? uh,
6: So yeah, that was post-pandemic politics. Oh yeah, Those are all very young new members,
0: but yeah. But it was. I'm learning, I'm listening, and there were things, concepts or identities that were unfamiliar to me. For example, the uh, concept of a millennial left, or the idea of a, um, of the 1980s as a decade to be studied. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it just never occurred to me. I would say, you know, the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. but the 1980s. Nor was I familiar with their approach to Marxism. And I can have this wrong, but it seemed to me that there is Marx and classical Marxism. And then there are all of these interpretations. Mm
5: -hmm.
0: Among them, Lenin, Trotsky, uh, Mm Kautsky, so on. But the sense that since 1917, there had been more failure or all failure and no victory, no achievement. That, um, and this was new, I'd never thought like that. And that to understand the failure of the left, you had to revisit the classics of Marxism,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which could include. Kant and Hegel mm-hmm. and German yeah. philosophy, and could in mm-hmm. fact include certain people of the Frankfurt School, especially Adorno and his concept of negative dialectics. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll get to that later. But that's that's a book that he wrote. Okay. Uh, but look we'll you know. And thus, Platypus proudly announces. That itself to begin from a negative positionality and from a cynical point of view. And I, I heard that, I mean, and I'm, I'm not, I'm frankly, I wasn't judgmental at all. I'm trying to understand the concept of the millennial left. Um, you know, most of you all are millennials, I think. But
2: okay. Oh but, uh, yeah. but, all okay.
0: but
3: I, I never I
0: never heard you all identify yourself in that way. So it was very new to me uh to hear this kind okay. of identity, identification. And the idea that the left had been a failure since the October Revolution. And the failure is the left's doing. Is that right now? Can I comment on I don't, don't want to, if you want to say everything for a first. You think I should say everything first? No. Yeah, let me say it. Yeah, but I want to like it. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. 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 Because uh, Dan, what Danny would say is, because I'm not certain that I got it all right. I, you know, I was hearing the use of, first of all, as is as, apparent, as I don't think it's been all downhill since the October Revolution. And I don't, I don't see the left the way Platypus does. The left is a white enterprise. For example, I know on one panel because there was a lot of talk about students for democratic society, SDS. Mm-hmm. And, and I was saying that I think your references are all. Mm-hmm. Because I don't believe SDS is the equivalent of SCLC, right. the Southern Christian Leadership would agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, um, there was one... Um, Statement mm-hmm. that was made that stuck with me, and that was by a German, and I think he is a German of Turkish descent. Mm-hmm. His name is Nadir, and I asked him when we talk, I said, "Did your parents actually give you the name Nadir? Because you know Nadir means the low, yeah, but it's may- pronounced it a little different. Name. Yeah, it might be different in in uh, in yeah. Turkish. <laughs> so he said, so we had a good laugh about it." But he said in his presentation mm-hmm. that the American Revolutionary experience had to be studied, including the American Revolution and the Civil War.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and I agreed with him, except that I said when I spoke, but also the Black freedom movement of the 50s and 60s. As a revolutionary moment of, of similar um, uh, importance, and and he agreed with me, and many people there agreed with me.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: I think everybody agreed. I don't think anybody disagreed with that. And I, I mean, not just in a performative sense. I do not have of pessimism or cynicism about this moment in history. And I don't think that everything since the October Revolution has failed. Mm -hmm. And I don't see the left as White leftist, this white enterprise. Platypus is the other night. It's it, it's so apparent to me. <laughs> <laughs> passing around some of back in my day. Bringing you up. We'll get
2: back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> oh
5: Lordy, see that.
0: <laughs> <Please. Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean Michelle is a little preoccupied <laughs> but but anyway, um one the fact that the free school are similar in generation and age group, you know that platypus is interested in philosophy, more so than we are. Uh, we, I, I would say the difference is they see philosophy as the key to straightening out the ideological mess. Exactly. Okay, I'll, I'll I'm back just it. yeah, I don't <laughs> want to enter you know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm always asking Zayu and, and Danny. Yeah,
6: but do I have what, it? act but what matters is actually your impression, it's not like yeah, you know, yeah. just
2: trying to correct yeah, things. Yeah. It's not not yeah. yeah, yeah, as, as see I see yeah. yeah, and as
0: you can see, I'm <laughs> very, you know, I don't want to get it wrong type no, no. of you know. your impression. Yeah. But
7: It is philosophy.
0: It sees philosophy differently than we do. For example, philosophy Hegel's philosophy of society and,
2: and you
0: know, kind of like my, you know, uh, philosophy, where I use clouds of the means of, you know, and I, when I spoke at one point at Platypus sees philosophy the way we do um, philosophy is politics by other means. Mm-hmm. I don't think they would see it that way. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite certain. And there probably more than one way that they look at philosophy but so many of the people who were at the convention had majored in philosophy in school. All the Germans were philosophers. I mean, all of them. And I met some very interesting Germans. In fact, one guy uh, who, he he said he's uh, studying Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Not that well known over here, I, you know, outside of philosophy circles. Mm-hmm. But he says that his two heroes in life are Ludwig Wittgenstein from the early part of the 20th century and a German rapper called Playboy or Boy. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I never heard of him. Yeah, a German rapper. Uh, but was, so I asked him, I, I said, uh, I what? What music do you listen to? And he said, I'm really, he said, he's really into techno. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, and that's very German. German. Yeah, he's a very German guy, man. <laughs> and uh, But very, and, you know, and so, but most of the Chinese that I met, in other words, Chinese from China, studying over here, they were all studying that I met economics, (laughs) like (laughs) Zayu, studying economics. And it seemed to me, especially Chinese from China, uh, that platypus allows for them a wider discussion of Marxism, which they had grown up or have been in school. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, they're they in Platypus and um, again, very well educated. You know, I was there and I said, God damn, I'm <laughs> among some of the best educated people in the world, which then forced me to rethink the American elite universities mm-hmm. and you know how here in free school we are always attacking and putting them down <laughs> <You know. laughs> i think as they should be but you know while all else might be crumbling around us and around them these universities have grown have deepened and have become in many ways the premier universities in the world. Mm -hmm. That's a hard thing for me to say. Now, we're not talking about Temple University or maybe the University of Pennsylvania, maybe, but we're talking about the Mm Stanford University of Chicago, the top of the Ivy Leagues, who consequently (laughs) attract the best students from places like china they are not here just to get to america you know they are here because these universities provide something very special especially in the fields of economics like wharton or chicago school of business as you know chicago school of business is the origin place of the supply side, Friedmanite economics, conservative market, free market economics, that's the University of
8: Chicago. Uh,
0: So you get economic theory rather than just business practice. Uh, Did I mention the two Chinese that I met? Yeah, let me tell you, that's a very interesting story. And I'd seen them very, you know, bright, you could tell, you know, the brightness, the uh, grooming that they had come from, and I'd seen them, but we didn't get a chance to talk, and so it was a party on the last night, of course, beer and pizza, <laughs> <laughs> had more beer and pizza, I had. <laughs> and so um, by this time, I'm really exhausted speaking, and listening, but I called the lift and it was out there. So these two Chinese guys came up and they said very politely, I don't know whether they call me Tony or Dr. Mantra, they may have said Tony, they said, excuse us, but uh, we would like to talk to you have some, some questions, just like that. And I said, oh, wow, you know, I have to have a lift waiting for me outside. I said, and I told them to ask Danny for my information so they could contact me. But you know, outside of the protective bubble of the great universities, America to them is something in a lot of ways, incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They have, I mean, you know, tremendous adaptive skills. They can socially adapt to that environment. Perhaps they're familiar with it from their upbringing in China, but America, what this... Chicago can you imagine you you know Chicago has one of the largest University of Chicago I think the University of Chicago police force might be as large as the Chicago police force and one of the largest police forces in the world so it's a protected it's, it's a protected environment. a city within a city a city with a world within a world a world i'm telling you man a world so you can imagine you're chinese from china hey i mean i'm not here to do a sociology of the west side Mm -hmm. i'm studying economics to be you know maybe a technician within in china but then i realized and I think this is accurate, that with all the criticisms they might have of their own government and their own society, they remain Chinese. And recognizing and this just in my being here, there and listening and I concluded that knowledge will play a much more profound function in changing the world going forward than it perhaps has ever played. Knowledge. So I'm looking, and it's not just going to come from one source. You know, when I say I was among some of the best educated, I felt that I was among some of the best educated people in the world. It's not a small thing. That doesn't mean that it's smartest and the most revolutionary, whatever. Highly educated. People would say, well, it's a bourgeois education. Probably so. But how they use it in the world. And I said to myself, China and Chinese intellectuals and academics in the United States will play a role in changing America. I I mean, I, I was just, when I, uh, because there were no Indians, I couldn't make the same observation. <laughs> so, <laughs> But obviously, Asia is in America. China is in America, definitely, is deep in America at the elite level and will have a role in shaping what the United States will be. Okay. Again, knowledge. Will be a bigger force than maybe it has ever been in human history. You know, we all talk about the Enlightenment and, you know, secularization and science and reason, and, you know, that's why we study Hegel and Kant. Yeah. But even given Germany in the 18th and 19th century, what we're seeing today Mm -hmm. is so much more significant than even now. Mm -hmm. And it will be technical knowledge, it will Mm -hmm. be scientific knowledge, it will be philosophical knowledge, it will be Mm -hmm. knowledge generally. Mm -hmm. And China, in this kind of positive feedback loop, will both these intellectuals influence influence the United States and China. One of the great ironies. And then it came to that China and the United States are probably closer than the United States is with any other civilization. China, you know, China is inescapable. Yeah. And I'm certain similarly in Europe, in England, Chinese students are all over there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and <laughs> yeah. Y'all are everywhere. <laughs> but, but it is Asia. The unavoidability, the inevitability, of the rise of Asia, and anyone that does not want to see it, be he or she, a neocon, a war maker, or whoever, that does not want to see this, does not want to see the future. Now here's another issue, just this whole thing. The question of the people, of the masses cuz i don't care how many brilliant and educated people you have mm-hmm. it is still the masses that are necessary to make history mm-hmm. so here you have the university of chicago a police force as large as the chicago police force a protected mm-hmm. bubble a very rich wealthy environment mm-hmm. with everyone wow. who who <laughs> all of whom <laughs> there's a discourse, a global discourse between elite thinkers at a university like that and elite thinkers in other places. Mm -hmm. And platypus is a kind of a derivative of that global discourse, Mm -hmm. but it is an elite discourse. It is not a discourse that has yet touched the masses and we had you know people were talking about I think I used it I don't know others may I may have gotten it from someone else the plebeian philosopher Mm -hmm. the philosopher of the people
9: Mm -hmm.
0: and I know there was one thing that I talked about several times is that besides the discourse that we're having here the big question is how to infuse what we are talking about into the mass movement and that doesn't mean that everybody but you have to touch the people in one or another way Mm -hmm. to give all of this the power that it really has all of this knowledge all of this education in a lot of ways is for naught Mm -hmm. if it is not a part of something larger than the intellectual but you know, um, the longer I was there, I mean, I was um, I was just, um, I was overwhelmed with the people I was meeting, the generosity and kindness of the people that I met. Oh, by the way, I have to, I can't leave this out. Uh, the last day we were at uh, Northwestern University, which again, ain't no joke. It's not the University of Chicago, but it ain't no joke either, you know? So, uh, which meant we spent a lot of money on Ubers. (laughs) (laughs)
10: I'm
0: still broke from that, but. (laughs) um, So we had gone to lunch and myself and the only other black man there, we befriended each other so we're going to lunch together and everybody's going and walking back either we came upon or she came upon us this very interesting chinese woman and she's a recent graduate in what else economics from the <laughs> university of chicago went to went yeah and she said she started you know just uh, a very bright woman started talking, and uh, and I was listening to her, and I said, "Wow, she sounds like me, you know." And uh, but then she began to—I don't know how this happened—to talk about abortion and how abortion has been used over time to eliminate the poor. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that was striking about the whole thing is that she, and this, you would find this throughout Platypus, they kind of reject all of the fads of the last 10 years. They're not into those, be it feminism, this, this cultural thing. It's just like, it never occurred to them. They are so focused on what they're doing. So if you wanna be around young people certain, somewhat like this, Platypus, very similar, man. but she, a, a Chinese woman from China. I have she's to. She's from
10: Massachusetts. So that's why. saying
2: <laughs> oh, so she's from Massachusetts. Yeah,
10: <laughs> yeah. No,
0: it's a, she has a Chinese thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, giant, uh, a big giant, one time. Yes, and. And, wow, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But she had all of the characteristics of a Chinese from China because mm-hmm. she did economics at the University of. Oh wow! But she—it uh, was impressive to me. And she's that she seemed untouched and unfazed and unimpressed with all of these millennial discourses. That have been thrown at you all over the last five six years they are not into it. there was no evidence of it anyway including the fact that and I don't know this to be totally the case that the women did not find it at all something to protest that you would have a panel with all men several panels with all men you know what I'm saying? Can so I make it slick? Oh, yeah, please do. Because on oh, Facebook, right.
6: men complained about there not being women on the panel.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay.
6: Just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Just wanted to point that oh, out. Yeah. Despite there being women organizers all of a sudden, there was like men on Facebook who were like, oh, you don't have women on this panel. <laughs> wow. Yeah. They
0: point that. Yeah. 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 But it was. We've had women on panels. Just so everybody knows. <laughs> We've yeah. 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 <laughs> had women on but it yeah. is a predominantly male organization. It's so interesting. And that, that's something, the reasons for that uh, would have to be looked into. Is it what they're studying and yada yada? But I just want to make this point once again, I've never been among so many millennials that were unfazed and untouched by quote, black lives matter quote, Me to quote, whatever, whatever, LGBTQ, all of that, that is something that is not in their thing. And it's because I think, I'll just say this, their focus is so focused upon correcting their perception of all of the failings of the left over the last 100 years. So, the rest all of this is just noise to be you know acknowledged but not to be taken seriously and that to me, I felt very i mean that was uplifting just to be in that kind of bond. and this uh I thought she was from China, <laughs> but from Boston, a Chinese woman from Boston, from Massachusetts uh, when she spoke. It was very interesting that she did not adopt any of the uh, personal personality uh, characteristics of elite university-educated uh, young people. And she said to me, because I, I said I asked her. I said, "Well, sit with uh, Caleb and Andrew. They're my they're my young hands from Philadelphia." Which she did. And she said to me that um, she appreciated my quote optimism, uh, et cetera. Now let me—I'll I'll just let me kind of end one. Just say a couple. Of when I, I spoke on three panels, one on liberalism and Marxism, one on uh, what is leadership for or what is leadership for the left. And the third one was. <laughs> yes, yeah. Now, I can't say that I effectively addressed the topics of those panels, but I did have my own take. For example, on Marxism and liberalism, you could take it in many ways classical liberalism and the concept of freedom and the individual and yada, yada, yada. Uh, or you could take it somewhat the way I did, what liberalism has become in the age of the neocons and Biden and so on. So I'm talking about um, uh, what's his name? Francis Fukuyama and Samuel Huntington, two of the most prominent liberal theorists the last 40, 50 years, you know what I'm saying? And what that has come to. And For me, Marxism, and I I said this uh, is not just Marxism, it is Lenin going forward. And that the the most productive, I felt the most productive and rich uses of Lenin uh, was to see Lenin in relationship to the black freedom movement and therefore the synthesis of Du Bois and Lenin, and I I spoke, I think it was on this one, the um, Lenin's theory of imperialism breaking at the weakest link, Mm -hmm. which is a weak link theory, you know, fits better with the anti-colonial struggle. Mm -hmm. Whereas Du Bois is talking about the revolutionary and democratic processes in the most advanced capitalist country. So what does the synthesis of the two of us. Then I was on this other panel on leadership, which was a very interesting kind leadership in the left. See, and that's, it, it was, it was ambiguous in a certain sense to me, leadership in the left, leadership, which meant leadership of the left, or the left giving leadership to something broader. It's, you know, I interpreted it, and it was my unique perspective given my, given my life, was the left giving leadership. And see, to me, the left is not the nominal a self-defined left. It is the Black freedom movement of and and that was not me. That was just me. I mean, that's the way I see it. <clears throat> and uh, so my idea of leadership had to be a broader concept of leadership, mm-hmm. and had to see the Black Freedom Movement and the Black Movement mm-hmm. and Black leadership, because yeah. I felt that again that that was the model for this time. Mm-hmm. But that was, so then someone asked a question about black power, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that provided me with an opportunity to talk about (laughs) the first iteration of black power. And that was in a march in 1966, Mm -hmm. through Mississippi, where a civil rights worker who had his own little march was shot, James Meredith, and all of the civil rights leaders came together and said, this is unacceptable and we're going to continue that march. So it was there, you had Martin Luther King, you had Stokely Carmichael, you had, I think John Lewis, many of them. And of course, the news media was focusing upon King. You know, he's the central figure, but Stokely Carmichael was standing right next to him in the march and Stokely, whom I knew quite well. um, He was very precocious, by the way, majored in philosophy at Howard University. Mm -hmm. Um, Very courageous, had gone to jail more than anyone in the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. except Martin Luther King in the South for voting, registering people to vote in other activities. Very courageous, very dedicated, but very young, and like many young men, very narcissistic. So, while they're marching, and this uh, this sense had already been present, uh, kind of a generational split between people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the SCLC, who were mainly ministers and linked to a very important and powerful institution in the black community where SNCC were young people more or less on their own kind of you know you would recognize familiar with the way you would see it uh, young people today wanting to be young wanting to be heard a lot of times wanting to be seen without any uh, political or social boundaries You see what I'm saying? So while they're marching and and Stokely is tall and King is shorter, Stokely is more outspoken and dramatic and King is very reserved, very reserved. This discipline is something to be studied. And so uh, the media would ask King, we're asking King, what do you think about this march? And he was responding and Stokely, would, as the media came, would shout out, what we want is black power, we want black power. You see what I'm saying? To upstage King, and then to say that this is the direction on the civil rights movement. Pretty much saying the civil rights movement has failed. And so um, over time, not that much time, you got this uh, bifurcation, fragmentation, where a kind of nationalism, black nationalism took over. Civil rights movement has failed. That's the Negro Revolution. And by this time, after the Black Arts Movement and all of that, the word Negro carried a pejorative with it. The Negro Revolution was not really a revolution, but we are representing the Black Revolution. So you know I'm saying King, which which was then a kind of gesturing that King and the preachers, but especially King, had sold out, was an integrationist and assimilationist, and we want something more radical. And I explained that to them. And how, in fact, um, Stokely Carmichael, the representative of black power and a black revolution, you know what I'm saying? uh, Ends up leaving the United States with the argument that the revolutionary center is in West Africa and not here. But that mindset persists till today. And on both, on every side of the color line, It's not just black young people, but white young people who believe that King and the civil rights movement was a horrible trick on the black masses and that the pure form of revolution was the black power movement. When in fact the opposite is is the case, the opposite the complete opposite and part of the ideological problem with the struggle today, including the black struggle, is the persistence of this idea that the civil rights movement failed.
6: Right. So there have been forms passed down about what it means to be revolutionary wise. Yes. Right, which is what we do. That's yes. what we're interrogating. Yes. Yes. In other words, people have received ideas about left and right. Um, and so when we're asking about, like, I actually asked this question, at the panel. I didn't try to say failure isn't bad, I tried to say there are horizons we have not reached yet. And so those can be passed down as actually victories. So I thought, I know the question, I even know the person answered this question was Conrad.
0: Yeah, Conrad. Conrad,
6: Conrad. <laughs> um, who's like, I, he's... A contact out in um, Portland. Oh, not, not Conrad Hamilton. Oh, another con. Okay. <laughs> the, the reason I wanted to say this is because I wanted to draw what I see as another parallel. Let
0: me let me just let me just yeah let me just finish this
6: book. Okay, know? yeah,
0: yeah then you mm-hmm. um, But I think that was a for me a defining moment because it then becomes a question of as I put it what do we what do we reference historically in imagining how we go forward what is our reference and i was arguing that our reference has to be the black freedom movement and if that is the reference rather than 1848 in germany or in europe or even 1917 in russia if we have the right referencing, we can think about the left, about left leadership, and about the future. And, and so, and even I think that would, um, my last one, I, I'm going to See, I was saying that the left is broader than you know. That the left are people who function in the broad mass, such as Howard Washington. People would think, oh, he's just a politician. He was just elected mayor, you know, just like Wilson Good was a politician like No, but they were different politically as day and night. Harold Washington comes out of a labor struggle. His father, his, his uncles, they all were in the labor struggle. They were in the Black movement. He himself, and I'm not clear on all of it, was in the left, that is the Communist Party or its affiliates. You know, So he comes to this not naive or anything, If you you can go back and listen to how Washington, you'll see how sophisticated he was, very sophisticated ideologically and politically, and very aware of what he was doing and what it would take to win. Uh, And of course, Martin Luther King. I mean, it was not just, Oh, he woke up one day and said, there's war and poverty linked to civil rights. He knew this all the time, but as a leader of a struggle for minimum, the minimum, the right to vote, just that. I mean, he can't, oh, well, what we really want is socialism, but I'm just doing this. No, you lead from where you lead from. Leadership is knowing who you lead and what the task yeah. is, and what people are capable of doing mm-hmm. at a certain time. Mm-hmm. you know. And they were sophisticated mm-hmm. people, very sophisticated, mm-hmm. especially Martin Luther King. I mean, mm-hmm. we can just, you talk about leadership, that form of mass leadership. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, the door was never slammed in the face of the left mm-hmm. to become a part of the civil rights movement
2: <laughs>
0: you know of course the fbi and those tried to use all of that to smear the civil rights movement mm-hmm. but they that was not their position be it on bayard rustin or mm-hmm. um, or anyone you know they never took that position And there, I know myself, there were many lesser known communists who, I mean, they couldn't do anything else but join the civil rights movement. What else do you do? And, you know, being a social activist, a person of moral conscience, you join it. I think you all's mother. was a part of the civil rights, came out of the civil rights movement into the world peace struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that's right. Out of this. yeah, Karen Talbot. And brings to the world peace movement all of the knowledge of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's just like, you know, the 1975 World Peace Council tour, which your mom was a big part of organizing. You know, it was the peace movement and the Black movement. As the Southern Christian Leadership Conference after King's assassination, people say, well, what happened under Ralph Abernathy and those who succeeded him? it moved to world peace
5: mm-hmm.
0: and the World Peace Council, mm-hmm. that you could not solve the problem of race in the United States without the struggle for peace. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is left in the substantive way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my referencing. And the the concept that last, this is my, I'm gonna shut up
1: now.
0: <laughs> I say that the concept of left is not a self-identity where I say this is what I am, you know, it is how you are positioned in the great battle of our time. You know, the Paul Robeson question mm-hmm. where you at, what side are you at? Uh, at the end, I think I said this, it is more a practical question than a theoretical question yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. and and I, I also said because there was this whole thing of um, of um, a political party mm-hmm. by the way I have to say and I, I don't know that I was out of line but I attacked Bernie Sanders yeah. Rufus. <laughs> <laughs> Without shame in my game, yeah, you can do that. Oh, and they didn't—they didn't get angry at me. Although there were people, there was one guy, Parker, who was a member of DSA, but he's as much a member of DSA as I am. Uh, I mean, was this Parker's whole thing it's, well, we're gonna bring it down if it doesn't get right. But but this whole. Game, so funny, man.
10: That was so funny. He said it himself, Yes, DSA is opportunistic.
0: He said it himself, the DSA is opportunistic. Yeah, yeah. That's not the nicest thing he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but it was on the table of should we form a political party? Well, Platypus is in no position to form a political party yeah. of the land. I mean, what it would take is still not fully appreciated by the millennials, and it would take more than you think: The other thing is, it's just like if we sitting here, oh we're going, we've done all we can, we're going to form a
11: political party. I mean. It's a long list of parties. the other problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Party. yeah. Left right. party number two hundred. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Joe, you know, I want those who form those parties to have that problem. Right, right. They don't know what they're getting <laughs> into. Right, right. But the left can constitute a powerful force for social change as a movement connected to wider movements of the people? There are all kind of questions that we would have to ask um, about this political problem. First of all, do you have the people prepared to make that sacrifice? That's number one. Number two, are the conditions right to do that? and number three, what kind of party? I mean, given, you know, when Lenin formed their party, they were illegal. They were dealing with a population who were 90% illiterate. So it had to be more heavily top-down. We're dealing with a very different population. We're dealing with a literate population. I don't say well-educated, but more or less literate. And um, A population which thinks in ways a bit differently than at the beginning of the 20th century. So all of these factors have to be considered before forming. And this is quote a revolutionary political party. Uh,
1: Family party?
0: Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 We can come back to that one. Yeah. Uh, But a revolutionary Marxist political party uh, is something that would have to be thought about very, very long and hard. But my point was the work of Platypus and other such organizations should not be held back while we wait to form a political party. And just, yes, Platypus has so much to teach, it is educating a generation. The Free school has a lot to teach, a lot to learn. As we move forward, the crisis is deepening. And one of the things that I went out there with was this sense of the, depth of the crisis that we face. This is unprecedented. It's a crisis of war. And frankly, we are at war with Russia. We are at war with Russia. How bad it's going to get, we just don't know. Uh, And it's something to be concerned about. But it's war and austerity. Well, people say, well, Uh, they haven't imposed austerity Mm -hmm. policies for what do you call inflation? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the worst austerity. And sanctions. And a world economic recession, what they call a recession, could break out. And how far this war will go if the United States loses, as I think they will, will they ratchet it up? We don't yet know. So I had the sense of an impending crisis, a deepening crisis, mm-hmm. of a mass of people who are angry and dissatisfied at their government, mm-hmm. but don't yet see a way out. A left, which is in this case, millennial, which is seeking a way out. And how and what is the dialogue and discourse among people and among groups that could contribute to finding a way out? But I'll I'll stop there if I talk too long again.
9: Be
6: into, and so, I, yeah, um, well, so I actually i am glad you brought up the second panel because that was my favorite one that you're on. I really okay. like that a lot, and um, also, I was telling Tony and right before this that a lot of our German and Austrian members they obviously know who Martin Luther King is, but they've never heard someone talk about the civil rights movement mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. it was a very uh, that's why I think Andrea said I've never heard you know this question. Um, I guess what I wanted to say is I wanted to say the namesake of Platypus to come back to you were bringing up the question of failure. Because we use it in a kind of specific way. It's not failure like homework, you're bad or something like that. <laughs> it means mean something kind of different. So our namesake comes from a story about um, it's, it's from a very late letter by Frederick Engels where he's talking to a young communist and he says, He's talking about Das Kapital, and he says this book might not really make sense to you, but let me give you the story. When I was a young man, I was I went to the zoo and I saw a platypus, and I thought it was a made-up animal,
5: right? Like I thought it was a trick. I kind of put I duck. Saying on a beaver and they're like this is
6: made up <laughs> and later it was like proved right through you know ecology and, and natural biology and wow. so what he was saying to the young guy was that something might not make sense to you at first but you have to task yourself to understand what it means in the same way the platypus taught me the lesson of reason mm-hmm. in that sense so coming back to it you know when we talk about the left today we could say the left is like a platypus in the sense that maybe it doesn't make sense from received forms, but that a left today would actually look different perhaps. And that that's an effect of history itself. So coming to the question of then failure, this kind of thing like that, because I know it's like a, you know, spicy word in that sense. What we were trying to say, and that's why I was glad you brought up the second panel and you are bringing up, it was the last question the relationship between Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael and um, Black Power in that sense. Is because you were bringing up the ends of the civil rights movement, how they have gone beyond what we've actually achieved. And so we can judge the present from a task of an anterior epoch. So, what we're saying when we say, and I agree that, you know, Saturday, Christmas Christmas have different emphasis, but I actually think, and since you mentioned philosophy, I think we have a similar philosophy of history, Mm -hmm. of what it means to read history, not as Mm -hmm. things that happened, but rather how can we judge the present based on tasks that were set by past people? And how does that make sense of where the left is today? Mm -hmm. So, when we say that, like when we say failures, it's not you're bad and should have never tried. That's what I literally said in my question. I felt like I had to get up. Okay, let me try to translate things or something like that. But rather, how is it that, and I was thinking of the speech you gave in February on Martin Luther King. How is it that the ends of the movement have kind of been shirked or suppressed? um, And it's been done by saying, well, everything the movement did was successful. So, in my view, I feel like liberals are like, oh, Martin Luther King, success, mm-hmm. done.
5: Yeah.
6: Right? That's yeah. their kind of, right? Yeah. It's a success, yeah. completion. You've accomplished all the tasks,
5: yeah. yeah. okay. checking
6: everything. So, what I, the reason I almost brought up, I knew it was going to be a little inside baseball if I was like, okay, I know Tony, and I'm going to like ask this question in front of the room, kind of thing like that. So, I tried to not use that example, but I wanted to basically say, Oh, you can use the civil rights movement to judge the present. So when you met, you know, Wen Tai or other young wow. uh, people at the mm-hmm. at Platypus, and you heard that they weren't kind of taking the fads of the present, mm-hmm. it's because they were judging the present by, say, the civil rights movement. Really? In that sense, yeah. I mean, we we read the civil rights movement once a year. It's in our syllabus, but um, you know, it's it's one of these things that I can say like. Oh, yeah, well, the ends of the Civil Rights Movement, the possibilities of the Civil Rights Movement, right? The crisis at the Atlantic Convention, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. You can judge the way in which various activist groups today are really just tales of Democrats in the way that the Civil Rights Movement created a crisis in American politics and really, as you were saying, transformed it. That's very different than, I don't know, I think, in my humble opinion, and I'm probably going to get shit about this on the internet, I don't know. The the, the protest in 2020 just kind of ended up just getting Biden elected, basically, in that sense. Okay. Okay. So I'm in a safe space so I can say this kind
0: of thing. You know know what I mean? Did not disagree with me when I said that one of the great failures of the left was to join the anti Trump movement. Oh,
6: I was trying to push you to
0: say more of that the whole time. (laughs) That's
6: why all my questions were like, um, and by the way, Donald Trump, what are your thoughts on that? I was trying to like give alley-oops from the crowd. Yeah, um, yeah, I I asked the question where I basically said, well, didn't the left get what it wanted when they got fight and elected in that sense. So all we're trying to ask in that sense is why is it that I, I feel like the received way in which left and right is understood today, mm-hmm. it looks like the Democrats are to the left of the Republicans. Mm-hmm. And so that's the history we're investigating. Mm-hmm. You also brought up the thing about mass movements.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: I agree. So Platypus, we're not organizing people. Do people have to be organized? Of course they have to be organized. And that's why Platypus is not sufficient to do the tasks of our time, mm-hmm. but we just try to play one simple role.
9: Mm-hmm.
6: And we try to post the conversation, Maybe Platypus members are wrong about what to take away from that, but we would still be doing our duty by hosting the conversation yeah. so that it could happen. So that's kind of my views on things on that <laughs> or something like, that. I mean, we, we really, we enjoyed you a lot there. I mean, you're a very popular person there. Yeah. I can, I can, Tony is downplaying the popularity.
2: <laughs> uh, was, you know, uh,
6: yeah, We I, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was great and everything like that. Um, yeah. well oh, I'm curious what other people I mean, we have the audio online as well.
2: Yeah. yeah I want to say something <laughs> too <laughs> since you brought up the Chinese student thing. <laughs> for yeah, people yeah. who don't me, my name is Se I'm from
10: China. I want to pen uh so there are of course Chinese people, uh Chinese students in part of this orbit.
5: Yeah.
10: As all kinds of people are. Yeah. But I think it's uh, actually very few these students that decided to become members. So it's. I think it's a particularly different or difficult challenge that we are facing. And also just throughout this organizational history, there is no such thing, right? So, so that's why you, as, as we speak, we are trying to think about how, how we can uh, Organize or try to make platypus more accessible to these students, because it is, I guess, in my experience, too, it's pretty obscure to them coming from a different context Mm -hmm. and about the demographics of platypus. I have some thoughts on that, too, because it's also very funny. Uh, My take on this is just that it's more of a nerds thing, uh-huh. okay. <laughs> yeah, so we, we more of a nerd than oh, and I think that God. actually
2: reflects. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. And that's, laughs> I think nerds? Nerds? <laughs> everyone, <It means> me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> everyone, everyone,
10: myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <laughs> There's a lot
0: of
5: nerds. Um, Hi.
10: So, like nerds. so yeah, I think that actually reflects the
3: current <laughs> situation
10: in the sense that we may have to be just like nerds to be to want to understand Marxism yes. in a way different from perhaps yes. 50 <laughs> years. Ago. So. That's
2: sure. relevant that's that's what Tony was saying mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you, it was more relevant
6: also perhaps 50 years ago Yang or is- at least maybe popularly <laughs> relevant not relevant in terms of is it needed, yeah. but, popularly,
0: but, you know. but But I think the fact I you know I kind of felt the presence of the Chinese from China mm-hmm. at the conference a lot more oh,
8: uh-huh.
0: and um, I think maybe they
10: just are from UChicago. I think, but I don't know them. Yeah, I, I felt true. like they just probably trickled
5: out.
10: Trickle. Uh, in and trickled out. <laughs> so I didn't get to really okay, okay. Yeah.
0: May, know. And maybe I over-emphasized, because it, what I took away from it was that at this level, at that elite uh, academic and intellectual level, you have Chinese from China mm-hmm. who are as much who are as comfortable in the elite academy of the United States mm-hmm. as in China, mm-hmm. and maybe in some ways more comfortable. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. But at any rate, going forward, China will influence mm-hmm. the America, America more than America will influence China mm-hmm. yeah. because of these academics. You know what I'm saying? Yes. These are not, I mean, they're overachievers, wealth. You know, the other thing is that, um, that, and I think you would agree with me. I wish Lou would see it here. But that China and the United States are closer than people realize that... um, that at that level of elite knowledge producers, these two societies overlap in very profound ways, and will do, and more so going forward. At the political level of geo, geostrategic politics, of course, they clashes. But at that level of intellectuals, like so. yourself. You know, you you are as much Chinese as you are American. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you you have a lot of skill. You you know so social skills. You can adapt to either environment. This is a, this is very important in the future. And um, well, I just wanted to say that. Go go ahead. I mean, is that fair to say? Do you feel that? Mm-hmm,
2: something about because
6: this is another thing I appreciate about the Saturday preschool, and I also because I guess sometimes I'm the, the Tony biographer for Platypus, that like I had to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all these like things, um, because I was they no longer have this at UChicago, but UChicago, I believe, used to be a great books place, yes, and so I would, yeah, they got oh rid of that God. syllabus. So a lot of the founding members taught great books. Now, the reason I bring it up. It's because mm-hmm. I mentioned to them that Tony went to Lincoln University. You had a great books education, oh, and that, huh. that doesn't exist really in academia anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I bring that up because that kind of education is really something going forward that you're not going to get, mm-hmm. except in terms of organizations like this. That's funny. Right? Or, yeah. I mean, but was we had great books mm-hmm. readings as well Because we were like, well, the nations or so or something like that. Um, and that, that's a very important thing. And that's also in terms of, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, in terms of educating people and educating younger people, not and uh, just millennials, but Zoomers or Gen Z. Whatever. I, I don't know. If, like, I said Zoomer once, and then it, I got in trouble saying Zoomer. So say. But, you know, these are very important places, um,
2: and it's true to the name of a free school. Right? Yes.
6: What Yeah, what's It's, I guess, well, I mean, did you want to, I was actually, I I shared an article that various preschool members uh, shared on Facebook of Martin Luther King teaching Plato, teaching Aristotle.
0: The Chartist movement.
6: The chart okay. So in in the socialist movement, historically, the bourgeoisie abandoned their role of teaching people. And so the socialist movement had to internalize teaching people. You know, Lenin had to teach Adam Smith to people. He had to teach Plato. People going mean, to teach this to the workers because the future of culture was being abandoned by the ruling class, and so it had to be taken up by the mass movements themselves. And so, in terms of great books, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a maybe catch all for certain things, but yeah. it's classics, yeah, it's
11: foundational, foundational books foundation. for the modern
0: West. That's One right world. for the modern, and so people trash it as only oh, just white yeah. men and and you know, but that's a mm-hmm. part of. And that's why it's so refreshing. Yeah. See, platypus—they don't even consider. A, yeah. It's a number of things that you know is on you know, the top of the agenda of a lot of people. <laughs> platypus doesn't even consider it. It's not even in our conversation. It's—it's th- it's though they say we have serious work to do.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just like us. I mean. It would be hard for an identity politics person to come here and feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we've, we've run a few of them out over the years. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, would you like to say anything, Cameron? Or oh, you want to say anything? Else? No, no. Yeah, not hard. sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't
12: know if I have much to add, but I
7: can. I can. Yeah. for more and
12: re-engaging with as well. And so when they had their convention, it was on my mind if I should have went. And then um I think I found out from you that you were saying that you were speaking that they invited you. Um, and so I was talking to a few people and I also just encouraged them to go and I Took a 20-hour Amtrak ride. Went to Pittsburgh first, and
13: I met my idol Jovan Jahan, and it was a great time. Wow. <laughs> wow. And, yeah.
12: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: uh, yeah I like
12: that. Yeah, I was that. I didn't go to the bathroom for
2: 20 hours. What? <laughs> yeah.
12: so I, did my show, so I didn't hydrate myself. What? Yeah. <laughs> so I
2: didn't drink water, and I was like very, uh, yeah.
12: So yeah, I, I got into yeah. Chicago, I think, an hour and a half before the convention was to start, like before, like oh. you were on your panel. So I resumed to my hostel, and I was, I decided to walk to my hostel, because I just wanted to see Chicago again, because it was, I think technically the second time I've been downtown. Like I hadn't ever been in Chicago since then. The mm-hmm. last time was um, actually when me and Michelle and also Portman came when we went to Chicago and we stayed in, um, I think, yeah. an Airbnb in New Chicago.
3: stayed the Jewish Center. Oh, the Jewish Center. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
12: It was, it was a, it was nice like coming back to the city again because I think Chicago is so different from Philly. Um, mm-hmm. Just walking around downtown and then taking a lift down to New Chicago, like I finally got a chance to see more of like this slice of what Chicago was. I mean just from the downtown to the south side, and mm-hmm. down through all these different neighborhoods, because I mean, Chicago is massive. I mean coming in I felt really intimidated, seeing all the big buildings, seeing all the people wandering around, and just I think trying to make sense of the city as well. Um, but yeah, I mean it was yeah, I was really happy to see you when I got to, <laughs> yeah. I think I saw Danny first then I went to, Danny brought me over to see you and Rosa. And yeah, it was, I think I think what I enjoyed the most was just getting the chance to know people and a lot of us, like really understanding the world. Um, Cause I think the panels are really interesting. But I think the most interesting thing was like afterwards, we walk between, um, you know, Chicago, like actually understanding the city and Also after um at extra curve where we had pizza and beer, uh, I only ate pizza
11: and beer the whole time. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I mean
12: it was good pizza, but uh yeah, yeah. three different pizza's not that great. Um, yeah. It, I, I think what I was like really drawn by was just because I think my impression of going to Put was like having you know been part of it before and then coming back again. It was always about okay, we're talking about Marx, Lenin, and it always felt very, very obscure to me exactly like what was the thrust the Um but I think actually seeing, you know, sort of these journeys that people walk into, I think what surprised me the most was like this incredible urge to understand the world now, understand the left of history, um, which, I mean, it also made me think about my time in activism as well. Like all the people I met there was very, I, I could say like they almost had an idea of like this is what reality is, this is what history is, and all these movements if you're not part of it, you're not part of the revolution or change. But yeah, I, I would agree with Zay, a lot of nerds and, you know, I think I fit well in there. <laughs> I met a lot of people talking a lot about, um, like, their time at college, because I really enjoyed that part as well, just understanding, like, what brought people to the podcast and what shocked me was just, like, seeing how a lot of people would have become apolitical otherwise. Like, so many people um, had, you know, they went through activism or, like, or educated on the online left, um, and they had all these ideas, but it was also very like demoralizing to be part of the, you know, to really want to transform the world of the young person today, but then realize all the forces today are just like, either you're for, you know, these exactly. identity politics or, or mm-hmm. these revolutionary yeah. orgs that actually don't understand you know, what revolution means mean today. And other people where they want to be as radical as possible, as edgy as possible, just countercultural. It's not mm-hmm. actually about going close to people.
2: Mm-hmm.
12: So I think for that reason, I mean, it made a lot of sense, like seeing young people where, the teachers that should have been the ones guiding them failed them, where you know people aren't able to actually understand and get an education on what it means to transform the world. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that helped me also. Yeah, it was. I think it was also jarring as well being on UChicago's campus, like for the mm-hmm. like really understanding UChicago for the first time, because um, I had some time in between um, like events and. I would just walk around, I remember the first time they walking with you, talk over to the...
7: you were. I
6: remember walking between the pens- Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
12: yeah, I mean, even you saying like the great history in this university, I mean, there is like a majesty to it that, you know, I mean, just the pen. And just in the buildings, how everything's arranged. Um, I mean, like my initial thought was, man, like this is, I feel like Penn can't match up to this. There's nothing here that feels like, it just feels like UChicago is an institution of learning. But actually being there for a longer amount of time, I think it. I also felt this sort of bending feeling of. It felt very sterile, like it's not connected with the rest of the city. Mm-hmm. I mean, to get to UChicago, you have to go to the south side. I mean, I, I try to take public transportation when I could. Like one of the days, I took the I uh, think the Green Line down from downtown to mm-hmm. Chicago. Um, it was very confusing because I also yeah. maybe appreciate Septa more. Like, does Septa actually, <laughs> <laughs> actually make sense to me? Yeah, it's uh, so like. Chicago, there's like multiple ways to get down there. All of them are at like an hour, multiple lines that split off. So <laughs> I made the mistake of getting on a line that split off even to the South side. <laughs> <laughs> pretty far away
2: from Chicago. Yeah.
5: I mean,
12: but I actually really, like looking back to it, it was like, honestly really appreciate knowing, like seeing Chicago now, like from the point of view of you know, not just being in the universe but outside of it, but not even like that far away. It was only 10 minutes away. I felt like I was in the middle of Detroit or Gary, Indiana again. Uh-huh. Like it was actually, you know, just looking around, all the gorgeous buses, very empty streets, like wide open, four lane streets, but only three cars driving down. Um, I think that made me also think a lot about Philly. I mean really, like, I miss Philly then at that point, because <laughs> I think you really develop a different sense of what the city and what history means to as well. Like to understand that, I mean, even being at Penn, you can't escape the question of gentrification. Like not to even speak about temple, like all the time, and you know, best questions on your head. But it's also the question of like how do we live together? Like how do we move together, and understand? You know, mm-hmm. this isn't just about drawing a line, actually understanding this disparity this unity like among all of us. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, and also talking about people how uh, getting to know people from the chapters. Like a lot of people are profoundly moved and inspired by what you said. Like everything just like to know, again, this, I think, you know, a living representative of the revolutionary history of the past, to also know that, like, there is so much to learn this time. Like it is a responsibility to learn and to also understand that it's not learning just to be smarter or to know more. It's not the more Marx you are, the more Lenin you are, or whatever, that you know Like, what is, needs to be done, but also to know that. Like yeah, there is a profound optimism still that we hold on to. like a faith. I mean, the time will be harder, but that was the other thing too I got from being the convention. Like I didn't feel like there was a cynicism that I felt from other groups on the left and other times I've been
5: mm-hmm. in the
12: activist groups. Like there is, you know, an urge to understand. I hope. and I oh. think that's mm-hmm. like that's definitely necessary I'm mean, like seeing you know what's happening with you know free speech now and pilotists as well. I think yeah'm I'm, I'm excited to understand what what that means for the future like for both groups for both of us like there's I mean the journey will be long. it's not just gonna happen in a blank. Um, whatever struggle will happen, the future will happen um, in the long term, but I think knowing that, yeah, because because I think on the on the the, the train ride back ho- back home I was uh, trying to process everything again because also didn't want to think about the 21-hour train right back. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was, I was turning again to like, because I've been thinking about black reconstruction as well. Like thinking about King and just mm-hmm. trying to like go back because I feel like for me it's yeah, like this, this immense you know, history that all of us like are responsible for. I think feeling that um in that moment and just yeah. Oh, no, I, I did feel this sense of you know this hope now and being back in julian yeah
2: yeah i think that's what i have to say mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, any questions or comments um,
4: go
5: ahead Jim.
4: well something that resonates a lot with um you know, the description of the convention and also how you all have been describing Adapus is this idea of, I guess I came up with like the discussion of like what does failure mean from how you you guys are defining it um, or understanding that in terms of like this commitment that I think we share of feeling this responsibility as Caleb was saying to complete the unfinished Tasks have been left by previous movements um, and revolutions, whether in this country or on a broader scale. And and I think actually like even the way Doc, you described like these groups of Gen Z, millennial people who are relatively unfazed by a lot of the more current fads um, and like the woke stuff, I think it kind of in a funny way, it kind of reminded me of you know that uh that speech or those those speeches by Milcar Cabral where he said you have to go back to the source. Mm-hmm. And um it seems like from how you you all are describing it, that it's like you're going back to the source of obviously Marxism, but of like the most progressive parts of, you know, I think what you have described as like the your like the most radical wing of the European Enlightenment tradition, which still has much to, it seems, contribute to the progress of humanity. And, um, and I think in a similar way, we like we feel that same responsibility towards history with um, yeah, obviously, the civil rights movement, the Black Freedom Movement, um, what was achieved and what was uh, made possible, or like what could have been made possible through reconstruction as well. And, um, and yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's exciting to hear of anywhere people like taking that history and these ideas seriously. Um, I think, yeah, I, I guess one of the questions I have is like, cause I listened to some of the, the panels, I didn't get to listen to all of them all the way through. But I listened to parts of the, the first two about liberalism mm-hmm. and then about leadership. And um, I don't know if there's like a, because I I don't know exactly how platypus works, but I don't know if there's like a broad consensus, I guess, in terms of, yeah, like the more detailed parts of the history of, I guess, what we term the left. Um, Because I I would hear people, and also I didn't know if certain people were part of platypus or had been invited to speak, Um, you know, like terms like Stalin, like the Stalinization of the left, (laughs) stuff like that. And one of the, I think one of the things that that I remember hearing was the reason for the formation of it seemed like the civil rights movement in the way that it did was because the CPUSA had been quote unquote stalinized and that they had dis- that they had alienated the black working class <laughs> as opposed to the previous era of the popular front um in which you know, there had been a broader like black and white organizing organizing of of the the working class. Um, and I don't know. I'm just curious about like, I guess, even, you know, this concept of like, um, you know, did Stalin fail the Russian Revolution <laughs> did and is that even is even the characterization of like you know the, the communist party's role is that accurate from especially like doc from what you experience um i don't know i i just feel like the, those questions are like i don't know how important they are but they seem important they seem relevant to me just because you know like last year i think you know we read russia like russia and america um and du Bois obviously has his own view of stalin um, there as well, and the connection between the Russian Revolution and the Black freedom movement and the wider like Bandung movement that emerged in the 1950s and so um, yeah, I think this question of like yes, we agree that you know there is a there is a vision, and there are movements that need to be completed, and if we don't have that commitment to that, then we have failed history, and we have also failed the future. But I think, I, I think sometimes it does matter the question of, do we also think that, you know, the people in those movements or in those projects failed their own, their own initial vision, I guess. Um, I, I guess it's an open ended question. Right, but, uh, yeah, I think that, well, that's the
0: question. Oh, just so,
6: just the first thing you are talking about sometimes who's a member he's Yeah. A, so, I think you're referring to Andy on his second channel, the guy that kind of left. Yeah. yeah,
9: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, what do they call
6: Andy? Oh, I, Andy, I guess, was in the ISO at one time. So, okay, I okay, think so. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. okay. So, he's not a podcast member. So, okay, that's okay. kind of his. Um, so going back to I guess the question then, uh, um, I guess I wanted to say two things. Uh, uh, like certain debates and would they matter or something? I think there are certain debates that carry out today that don't really matter. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there is like a little bit of I don't know rehashing of like debates between let's say Stalin and Trotsky in the twenties. Like yeah. is that really what's going to like decide the fate of the world in twenty twenty two? Probably not. Right, and something like that. Um, I think I emphasized earlier that um, maybe the Saturday Preschool and Post had a different emphasis, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's necessarily a dismissal. And so that's why in the United States, I would agree that the civil rights movement probably was the highest expression mm-hmm. of a revolutionary movement. And that's why I was bringing up the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And we've had panels on this as well, mm-hmm. in fact. So I just recommended one of Cedric Johnson, Bill Rothbard mm-hmm. 2013. And so. mm-hmm. um, in terms of open questions as well, this is why we, the necessity of us to us, at least our self understanding, is that those questions should be open and not closed. Mm-hmm. So whether or not I, like me, Danny Jacobs, get the answer correct mm-hmm. is actually to me secondary to whether or not that question is kept open. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm wrong, I'm fine with that, mm-hmm. but I would still want somebody else to have the chance to be able to answer about what is that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned also earlier in terms of judging a movement by its own standard by its own ends. Mm-hmm. That would that's the correct way. I know you guys are about to read Hegel. That's the only true way that okay. Hegel would say to judge things is not externally but based on its own ends and purposes. Mm-hmm. So, when we say things like I, maybe I won't say the word failure anymore, when we just say that it's unfinished in that sense, mm-hmm. that incomplete, yeah. yeah. incomplete, yeah. right? You can only judge that from the ends that the movement set itself. And those right. things get suppressed and then they condition how people even understand that history, Yeah. right? It's the famous Marx thing. We make our own history, but not at a whole cloth. That's the direct translation. So well, you know, it's like when we look back on the 20th century, actually the 20th century totally conditions how we even think about it. It's not like I'm outside of history and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm not the, uh, the messiah judging it from without. I'm rather a product of that and trying to understand it in that mm-hmm. sense. So yeah, I mean, in terms of, I think the broad consensus in terms of platypus is rather uh, all bets are off or admit everything but concede nothing. So that's how we're trying to raise the question of the 20th century.
5: Mm-hmm. now
6: in terms of, I'll take a very specific one, which might have been the spicy one on the third panel, right, so Stalin and Trotsky, I'll just go right into it, right, just, you know, so then that would be a question of judging the movement according to its own ends, and so one could say, yes, no, this ends were pursued by this side or that side, and I'm all open to hearing that, Um, but that's the question there, right, because in a sense, uh, I agree, like, what am I going to do about that in 2022? And let me just say one more thing about the nerdy, you know, gonna read every word (laughs) about Marx or something. So it's also another way that you can say, well, maybe this doesn't have any relevance directly today, but why is it that millennials or Zoomers go, I want to understand the world? And I heard about this big bad guy named Karl Marx. What does that mean? That they reach for that. Where does that come from? (laughs) Oh, I need I need Karl Marx to tell me to vote for Hillary Clinton. (laughs) 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 Everybody's laughing and that fucking happens. (laughs) Right? <laughs> so why did that happen? There's a there's a received understanding of these things that go, oh, haven't you read Left Wing Communism? You gotta, you gotta participate in the bourgeois yeah, 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 yeah. You can't be an ultra leftist, right? Like, you're you're gonna say something. Sorry.
4: No, I mean I mean I, yeah. One thing that I think we've all encountered and also experienced is this phenomena of people especially young people having certain positions on things, but not knowing where their position comes from. Yeah. And wow. it's, a, it's a huge problem, I think, especially because, yeah, like even if you do read Marx, like like your perception of the current situation in like American society, it's, is it really based off of Marx or is it based off of other philosophical, ideological movements which have, yeah, preconditioned the way that you understand the world. But yeah, that was just go go ahead. Well I watched
1: I watched the first panel in full. Um, and then I watched your remarks on the second panel. But I feel like in addition, going off with Jeremiah saying I think the other interesting thing I observed about the Platypus Convention is even though and it's what you were saying, Doc, about the fact that there are a lot of Germans and then there are, mm-hmm. there's a the presence of Chinese, South Americans. Actually, it's interesting that they're all coming to America, to Chicago, to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I actually think even though there is an examination of Marx, Engels, a lot of what we have, like, you know, the classics, certain philosophers from the European tradition. Mm -hmm. I actually feel like in some ways, the conversation that's being had, has more to do with what is the American essence. Mm -hmm. Or I actually do feel like it is a question of the American experiment. Um, and I do feel like that was a trend coming up a lot throughout the convention in terms of even concepts of democracy and freedom. I feel like it was not coming from just the fact that people are interested in democracy and freedom. I actually feel like it was a grappling of a lot of young people, a lot of people of, what is the unfinished American Revolution? What do we define as the American Revolution? I think that's also why, Doc, you made a big contribution in saying the American Revolution is not just, it's not like the American revolution, but let's now take into account the second great American revolution, the civil rights movement, or how do we understand the history itself of America or like what defines an American essence? Because in some ways I think that actually plot and I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, but I do have, I feel that like the desire to understand Marx or Engels or whoever actually has more to do with trying to understand what is also the assumption, like what are the assumptions in America. And I I do bring up the question of America just because I feel like even though I know it's a platypus international and they call themselves like it is the international convention, I actually do feel like there is a central question of like the importance of the American experience. And I also feel like it's more important than ever because not just because like here at the free school like the reason why we're so interested in understanding China, the Chinese revolution, or we're interested in understanding Gandhi and the, and the, and the anti-colonial movements of the mm-hmm. world. It's also to better understand, like what about America, the essence?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I also think that's why we also refer to Du Bois a lot, like you're saying, not just the synthesis, but how does Du Bois complete, perhaps complete um, something that Lenin could not, partially because of the historical period.
7: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I also do think, like, I actually am, I found the first panel really exciting, especially like the interplay of you, doc and the other speakers. Like, I really enjoyed hearing like you and, um, what's his name, Benjamin Studebaker. <laughs> talk. Yeah, I mean, he, even though he comes across as a character, actually, I found a lot of the substance of what he was saying really interesting.
2: <laughs> um,
1: and especially like, it, it kind of brought me back. I, I found, I, I really actually recommend people watch the Pirates Convention and also in better understand preschool's goals, because it reminded me a lot of free schools' understanding of history, our like philosophy, our principles, especially like the idea of the triad.
4: You know that the history
1: of the world, especially America, cannot be explained in a dialectic, but instead what about the Black worker, the white worker, and the white master?
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah and also i think that i mean and i think i think something that's special with the free school is our understanding of the centrality of not just the black freedom movement but the black Worker, mm-hmm.
2: um okay.
1: and it's something that you can also feel in chicago but also when we went to the south like what we really felt was the centrality of the black worker mm-hmm. um but also the triad the black worker the white worker and the white master mm-hmm. and then also what that says about the great vibration when southern blacks move north. Yes. um So yeah, it kind of brought it brought back a lot, you know, and also like I was really interested in Spencer on the first panel. He said something like democracy is the barrier to liberalism. And then there's democracy is the barrier to liberalism or something to that extent. That was interesting, like the whole conversation of democracy because Du Bois he says, and then you said this too, Doc. You said actually what the Black Freedom Movement did was explain that democracy in America but also you could say the world would never be achieved without racial equality. But then you have to say racial equality can never be achieved without peace.
5: Mm -hmm. So now
1: say, so now connect it and say democracy can never be achieved without peace. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it was was really, it was a very um, interesting, like the panel I watched is very interesting in itself and I'm excited to watch the other panels.
2: Uh, Yeah, so
11: I I watched, uh, uh, I think I watched about three panels. I saw the two, uh, the docks on the liberalism and the uh, the second one, the leadership, and I saw the the other one that you weren't on the 90s left. And I thought they were all interesting. I wanted to say, first of all, that I do really uh, appreciate that Platypus is trying to do, bring uh, intellectual work back to the left. Because, I mean, I think that's a theme I've certainly taken away from. Uh, my experience here because I mean speaking of uh, my own ex- my own personal experience on the left like having been involved before coming here with different kinds of left-, left parties and so on where you know you see why all that work leads to nowhere because there's no there is no intellectual base for any of it you know a lot of it is uh, different kinds of organizing which inevitably play into the hands of the ruling elite so I I, I really uh, appreciate the, the the fact that this this is being taken up by Platypus. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, what I also liked about the panels a lot was that different perspectives were brought there. I mean, like you said, the the debate is remaining open. I mean, there may be, may or not, may not be a consensus among Platypus members about a particular issue, but regardless, that question is being being debated. And that was very refreshing because uh, we just don't see that. I mean, that's cancel culture and that's, you know, Mm Conformity of thought and all of that sort of sort of stuff, and so I does certainly see platypus, uh, at least based on that that conference, uh, challenging the conformity of thought that is the, the elite is is basically perpetuating. And uh, I mean, I'm glad that today, Danny, you you clarified what you mean by failure. And uh, I would say that again. Uh, the way I've others uh, talk about failure and success, especially in the these different left groups, you know, I think I think it's problematic for them to use the term failure and success because of the connotations. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was suggesting incompleteness versus completeness, because you we also have to look at the question of responsibility. Who is responsible yes. for a project being failed, successful, yes. or incomplete, incomplete, yes. yes. right? <laughs> because I think what Jeremiah was also getting at is that certain debates. Uh, which while okay, I would I would agree, for example, the Trotsky-Stalin debate, there are parts of it, the Minos, uh, Minoshe the details, which are not very relevant. But I think some of the substance of that debate over questions of state power or socials in one country, or that's just one example, other debates about the civil rights movement, about the various national liberation movements. Those debates are still relevant because we have to get to the question of who is responsible for the right? <laughs> because there's one perspective, which is, which is what I I have found in the predominant in the current American left or the current predominantly white American left, which is saying that the responsibility uh, is is because of the, the revolutionaries themselves, the people involved in these projects, whether it's the experiment with socialism in the Soviet Union, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's various national liberation movements. The a consensus on much of what I found in the American left and certainly in academia is that oh the reason those all those projects failed is because the betrayals of the leadership, being mixed with uh, your know, various things that they were—they're repressive, they're undemocratic. Mm-hmm. Versus uh, what I think most of us here would 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 believe is that the responsibility falls on you know the the reactionary forces. First of all, the U.S. ruling elite, U.S. Yeah. imperialism, and so that's why I would suggest incompleteness versus completeness, right? Can ask a question? Yes, the, yes,
6: which yes. is that if that's the case, then it becomes a question of what are we trying to learn from? I mean, I tried to. The reason I brought up responsibility from within is simply because that would actually be something I could try to learn from. Whereas, to the degree that it's just military, like, uh, outflanking by the, the reactionary state powers, then in a sense, it kind of stays at the level of just like militarily not being influenced. well. I would, I'm hit, not, it's yeah. not that I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, obviously, it doesn't. Tony knows someone who was very close to me who actually partook in. Kind of letting some of what John Rains, John Rains, who God. partook in revealing actually a lot of COINTELPRO, basically, oh,
0: okay. someone who was, um, was a professor of religion at Temple. Okay. So yeah. I guess
6: the only the only reason I the reason I bring that up is rather how someone if we're trying to bring up a historical mm-hmm. question of how people understand what has been passed down to them. Mm-hmm. So it's not a like I'm not trying to say that they're not terrible reaction on Paris FD. And, you know, since we just read Rosa Luxemburg, I mean, she was literally just murdered by one of them as well. And of course, you know, I think without the reason why I think Trump has been great is because he's real you know, <laughs> deep state. I don't even know what I'm allowed to
4: say. This.
2: You know, I don't know
6: if
4: this is a bug run or something like that.
6: <laughs> but, um, I just wanted to ask about that then, <laughs> what you mean by that in terms
11: of- Well, uh, first I would say that it's not merely a question of, uh, of course, military uh, outplay, military and physical repression, of all kinds whether domestically or uh, internationally is a major factor, but it's not merely that, it's not limited to that, right? Domination is physical, military, but it's also economic, it's also political, it's also ideological. Again, okay, getting to this discussion of intellectual work. And in in some ways the ideological is the most deadly and Mm -hmm. continues to be the physical can be seen openly and resisted but the ideological you know the the domination of the mind and domination of the spirit is the the most dangerous the cancerous Mm -hmm. so uh i would suggest that for us even now we still have to still a great deal of work remains to understand all those dimensions Mm -hmm. of uh of uh, reactionary assaults on various uh, experiments and movements for liberation, uh, which are incomplete, and why why that means that they're they're incomplete, because that suggests if 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 we can identify and we can come to a conclusion through analyzing these things scientifically that the responsibility lies on these reactionary forces, then we can say oh it's incomplete just uh, despite the best striving of the people involved in them, and thus we need to take them up. And of course we need to learn from what's happened since then and so on. But I think the other conclusion, which I think uh, I've experienced as the dominant one, which is that the responsibility is because of the people, the leaderships of those movements the people involved in it. Then it's like, okay, maybe we can take something, but we have to rethink things. We've got to embrace new ideas, right. then to get into right. identity politics, right. into ideas, oh, they didn't have that. Martin Luther King didn't right. have, right. for example, you know, uh, intersectionality. Okay. So <laughs> we need that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah right, so, so, yeah. so we, you know, that that's the real reason they didn't understand that. So, so, that's, that's what I mean when I'm talking about, uh, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, receive wisdom, right? We're not, we're not operating outside of history. We are, we are very shaped by everything that's happened uh, since this period. And that includes the various ideological assaults which happened on these movements, the various ideological assaults which have happened afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, that have been that, that, that you have to dig through to even get to the, to the actual history. So I think that's the task that's before us, and I think that the—I mean—that's what I liked about the panels. That I think there was an opportunity for some of that to be debated, and I mean, it's a—it's a process, right? It's an intellectual work, uh, especially for for you know, people who are radicals, who are on the margins of academia, margins of the dominant intellectual spaces. As many opportunities and as many spaces we have to have these discussions, I think is a, is a positive. So and I mean that that's the point. We cannot leave this uh, uh, in the hands of the elite. We cannot allow the elite to to shape the, uh, the received wisdom. We can't allow the elite to mediate these debates. Uh, we can't allow the elite to be really involved in any way. We have to struggle for ourselves to shape alternative forums yeah. and uh, analyses. So I mean I would say that I I, I got that out of out of this and. Uh, I mean it was interesting i appreciate that there was an honesty also the honest airing of differences you know? oh, <laughs> for example that you're saying within the second panel with that andy guy <laughs> oh, yeah. the an honest airing of differences or even you know uh, the debate you had about categories whether race is merely a liberal red <laughs> or
2: there's material
11: reality is a good it's a, it's a debate we need to have on the left because yeah. we can't we can't allow the positions merely to be you know the liberal reified versus identity politics we need to we need to get into what are the radical uh, alternatives so,
3: Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm story. sorry. Excuse my
9: back, y'all. Yeah, yeah. So just I thought that was
1: so, so first of all, I've been so inspired by you guys. You guys are amazing. I haven't felt this in years. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I've been sitting in some lonely wasteland of, I don't know, liberal, wishy-washy, crazy camps.
2: Uh,
1: uh, yeah. Anyway, my, my mind is really clear right now. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling
3: so shy. You guys I so to
2: see
1: the future here. So that is why to go back and just really be the struggle because I have been kind of sidelined and just depressed and COVID that much yeah. um, But I just want to say, you know, my mom, Karen, our mother, our mother um, who was in the peace movement, she started from a radical perspective with her family being raised as a father with these. You know, university students like you come to the house and they discuss Marx and the peaceful and all that. Well peaceful mm-hmm. was quite common, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so she was raised with all that and that background, um, that knowledge. I was a serious student of Marxism and Leninism and all that stuff. I'm not, I'm I'm terrible. I just mm-hmm. sat there and absorbed it from the atmosphere of the either. Yes. <laughs> I was lazy, my generation got lazy. They were but I got so so she, um, then she got went from that into the Vietnam War, the anti-Vietnam War movement, about sort of that civil rights movement, and, you know, all these things that, and then eventually the indigenous rights movement, the American yes. Indian movement, right, that we went amazing. Yes. and then that led her as, uh, into the international peace movement, and, and the, for, against, you know, for, for nuclear disarmament, and all that stuff, and she saw the interrelated issues, and she ended up working again on all these issues with the women's movement, the, against the apartheid in south africa so she really saw the interconnectedness of, of, of these movements but one thing i always took away from her like i said I, i've gotten lazy i want to get back to my studying. you guys are encouraging me um, the one thing she i always thought of her was just the class struggle more, the class struggle. you have no idea how vicious yes. the ruling class can be and and and, and 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 that's what they want to obscure they want to obscure that there is a class struggle. They want to obscure that they're out to get the the, the people of the world. They are, they are actively out right to oppress and, and viciously attack them. And any movement, including you guys, they're out to attack you. They're out to divide us against each other. I see nothing but division out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm sick of it. Like, you know, the left, the right, the mm-hmm. yada. Yeah, yeah. And I I I've lost my goose. I've got, like, I got, you know, how we got those identity politics. I have, I'm a gay woman, you know, but I'm progressive, and then I'm voting
2: Democratic. Suddenly, <laughs> I'm so, with the Democrats, and they're, like, they're not making sense anymore. Like, I'm
3: being passed like this, but now you're like, you know, what's up with that? Like, and then, and then
1: like, oh, that, that that person on the right is starting to make some sense. I like, hey, hey, you're talking about civil, like civil rights, you know, the state don't let the state, you know, oppress you, right? You know. And so I'm like, but well, no, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, talking about bodily autonomy, and, and I. But what's happening here? I, anyway, so I'm so confused. I have lost my groups. I, not nobody wants me. I still have to come back with you guys.
2: Yeah. Okay.
9: Bring up because, um, uh, you so besides so. I grew up in an elite bubble sort of near Bill and Haverford, and um, that I, I, was, I was sort of educated. Sort of, uh, Danny was talking about great books. My, my mom is, um, uh, from Britain, and so I, uh, was on uh, you know, Latin, and I grew up on the main line, so I understand what you mean about like how it's a whole bubble. I didn't really exit that bubble until I came to Temple in North Philly and got involved in um, activism. Um, and um, there was a time when I went to the University of Oxford for an internship, and you were talking about how there are these Chinese students at the University of Chicago. And back in 2008, when I went to Oxford, none of the well, lab scientists were British. They were all from somewhere else.
5: Mm-hmm.
9: Um, and it was, uh, you know, the markings on the wall for really what Britain is today, which is, you know, h- hardly hardly British. So it's, um, you know, it's uh, mostly when I went to London, you hear a hundred languages on the street. You know, a lot of Indians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that sort of brings it back to. Um, you know my experience, you know being taught Latin, all these books being educated, I was sort of, you know that uh, that uh, path that was being educated out of me uh, in that bubble. And uh, you know it was only until I got exposed to you know, the ideas of the preschool, uh, I was uh, liberated by the these ideas of uh, a new possibility. And uh, it was only until I studied the, you know, civil rights movement and black history that I was able to see uh, India in its entirety. Wow. So it was only by studying, um, you know, the civil rights movement, that I was able to uh, go home to India. And, you know, I think even uh, the Indian people talk about how Indians don't even know India anymore more because of the corruption of uh, Indian elite, and then, uh, you know, just to comment on what Danny said about the deep state, I was you know, driving with my Starbucks oat milk latte and <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was listening to NPR and listening to uh, Donald Trump say that he uh, was introducing Mike Pompeo and it was just real casual press conference you with know, Mike Pompeo, sometimes they call him Mike Deep State Pompeo. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
12: not have That's so funny. <laughs> oh, anyone else? Yeah.
2: Go ahead, Michelle. No,
0: I don't <laughs> <that>. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> like to say something? Uh,
1: I, I won't yeah, say great. much, but I, mean, I think you. I think I heard a little bit about the convention from both Caleb and Doc after they got back from Chicago. And... Um, I found it to be a really exciting harbinger of like new times to come, and also I think a turning point in the ideological, the general ideological landscape. Um, something else we've been talking about is how this has been 10 years of preschool. This actually next Saturday is the 10th anniversary of preschool. Yeah, and I've only, I've only you know, seen the past three years myself, but I've heard you know some about the first five years of the sixth, seventh year. My mind is always on like the trajectory of what this collective has been, like how it was seeded, how it's grown, and how almost unbelievable like this type of political and ideological struggle is. And I think I think platypus is is, is an example of that, at least this like new unity between Free School and Platypus. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the first time I ever heard about Platypus was in early 2019 through Caleb and then Zeyu. And I had a really hard time understanding how um, it could be congruent with the ideas of preschool. Mm -hmm. Um, And like seeing that congruence now is, for me, it's just very exciting, but I think it also points to how the deepening crisis is leading to a heightened, um, like a heightened commitment to the truth among a certain category of people who are, I don't know, like particularly intellectual, particularly like emotional, particularly moral. But I really, I really think that like in the next five, 10 years there's going to be a lot more people like looking into preschool for clarity or yeah. looking to have some type of relationship to these ideas. And
5: mm-hmm.
1: as someone who feels, who is very committed to like the vision, the project of preschool, it's it's also very interesting for me to see that people engage with these ideas in different ways, in in ways that you know like I, I wouldn't have conceived of. That is not the way that I choose to engage with them, but um, yeah, it's I think the example of the platypus convention and the way that we've all spoken about platypus has led me to think about the way that I practice politics more broadly or more creatively as well. Um, yeah, so I I don't have that much else to say. I just think I think this is a, a special turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this also has to do with coming out of two years of COVID. And, yeah. Yeah, um people are looking to reconsolidate over something again. Yeah. And um, and Doc and we were talking about this a bit this morning, but I think the truth stands the test of time. And this
7: is also
0: so am do we have many
1: just let me just
7: see if we have any comments and then and then uh,
1: kind of being the Waters by Taylor
7: yeah
3: John Debar, I'm not sure exactly maybe the conference... he was
9: referring to uh, when was he... talking about the black power and the yeah.
2: Uh,
1: yeah 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 he says, I see this in New York a lot it is similar but not identical to Trotskyism in my honest opinion in terms of function definitely um
0: what does he say who is some of
1: John, the? John DeBar. I think he's talking about, like, the 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 Black power, the Stokely Carmichael mm-hmm. friend. Okay. I think so. Devon um, says, Tony, did someone drive you around to see many of the changes since you were a student there, mm-hmm. especially in the Black community on the <laughs> South and West side?
2: No. <laughs> I know that
1: I was quite surprised during my first trips to Chicago after about 15 years, the impact of gentrification in Black communities where on the West and South side, we and the Panther had organized.
2: I'm sorry,
0: you know, if I could just say something, you know, Chicago can almost be read as a very tragic place. I get the sense of tragedy more there than here. Although we could speak of the modern... No, because of the devastation yeah, of the working yeah, class. I can see that on yeah. Because
11: yeah. You know, uh, it's interesting because uh, actually when Caleb was stopping in, in Pittsburgh, he was telling me that it reminded him a lot of Detroit, you were saying, right? Mm-hmm. And I think probably Detroit and Chicago would similar in some ways. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing, like, uh, there's, I, I mean, I don't know, because Philly is the first city I really spent a lot of time in mm-hmm. and, uh, and became very politicized in. Um, and now I'm living in Pittsburgh for about uh, it's been about not been a year yet, straight, maybe like eight months. but uh, i i do I do sense that there is some special kind of uh, spirit and struggle, a spirit of struggle. like this it feels like there's a prob- lot of problems, a deep sense of alienation and suffering here, but you feel like the fight is still going on here. You know what I mean? In Pittsburgh, I, you know, as I go around, as I try to, I try to find like equivalents of what's here in Pittsburgh. Of course, there's no equivalent of the free school, but I try to find, mm-hmm. you know, what is the equivalent of the Church of the Advocate? Mm-hmm. What is the equivalent of mm-hmm. other institutions? Yeah, yeah, what is the equivalent yeah, of yeah. Nation of Islam? I, but I'm trying to find, but you find like a lot of it is either gone or kind of co-opted and sold out, if I can say. And it just feels like, I was telling Derek earlier, it feels like being in like a, almost like a city that's a, it's from, from the industry perspective. So de-industrial, like an industrial yeah. cemetery. Yeah. And it's like, people are building on top of that carcass. Yeah. You know, there's like, cause at Pittsburgh and I think Detroit and other places, I don't know if Chicago might be similar, like lost yeah. so much of its population
2: yeah.
11: from like the eighties until the mid two thousands. And then there's the, the gen, like the med university driven and health driven yeah. and big tech driven repopulation. Yeah. So it's like, you'll go around and you'll say like, oh, here's a bar. Oh, this used to be a bar. Um, there's like an abandoned factory. Oh, this bar used yeah. to serve the people from that factory. <laughs> they used to come after the night shift, drink here the next shift, but now, oh, that's that factory is repurposed into condos. This bar oh, is repurposed yeah. to a hipster place. The whole city is full of that. And then, so I'm trying to read like, oh, like what I was telling you, oh, Dennis Brutus lived in Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, August Wilson lived in Pittsburgh. There's a whole black arts movement, black theater scene in Pittsburgh what happened to all that? It's like everybody, everybody died, theater closed, institutions closed, the factories are gone. And uh, yeah, you get that spirit of devastation. And then on top of it is this shiny, happy, you know, plastic university, big tech, you know, and so and it, it's very interesting in Pittsburgh because across the color line, like, you know, the neighborhood I live now, it's called Lawrenceville. And it's now it's a very hip neighborhood, but I talk to people even like 10, 15 years ago, it was like an opioid center of Pittsburgh. It was all white people. And it's still a handful of remnants are left of like, you could see like white working class who worked their whole lives. And now they're just seeing around them, everything changed, you know?
0: You know, um, just apropos what Yvonne was saying in this idea, you know, I, I didn't visit, um the South Side, mm-hmm. because I do know the South Side, which, if you read, for example, any of the novels like Richard Wright yeah. or anybody that wrote about Chicago, Du Bois is uh, Chicago, writing Chicago, about mm-hmm.
1: the Chicago politician,
0: the Chicago politician in, the, politi- in yeah. *The Dark Princess*. Mm-hmm. You know, you get this sense of this vibrant community. Mm-hmm with all of the contradictions, but all of the vibrancy. Mm-hmm. And now to see that wiped out, I was afraid, actually, I have to, to go to the South Side mm-hmm. because I didn't want to see any more tragedy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, in fact, I mean, uh, e- even the way you read-
6: When we were driving from the airport, we were looking at the Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, just like what Joe was saying, he feels a vibrancy here. But to me, I have to say, I feel a deep tragedy and sadness about Philadelphia, what could have been and what was just aborted. You know,
11: but... But it feels like there's still some fight, you know? Yeah, I I agree with that. I I mean, there's tragedy with this fight. I agree with And I
0: think part of that is the free school. Yeah, 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 I would agree. Yeah, 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 I think our sense of... And I, just being an outsider in Chicago, I would not know where to look to find that. And Danny told me to mention when we were coming into Chicago from the airport, you know... Uh, which is the far west side coming in, yeah, coming into Chicago. But one of the things you see about Chicago, at least in the loop, mm-hmm. in the downtown area, they preserve some of the buildings from the 30s and 20s and oh, yeah. and not yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It, it's a different thing. But I didn't get to the uh, west Obama's side.
11: Obama's responsible, right, for a lot of the stuff in yeah. the south side. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, where it started it, yeah. politics. And, yeah. Uh, you know, all the stuff who's involved with their the university and other stuff. Absolutely. I think Michelle Obama was involved with the yeah. University yeah. of
1: Chicago.
11: <laughs> yeah, with their hospital, <laughs> hospital their vice president of their and hospital. Now so. his yeah,
1: now today. the library,
11: yeah, yeah. I remember Glenn Ford written about the library and what that's gonna do. So.
0: and this this is part of that tragedy of the black elite or what Glenn Ford calls the black misleadership class. What? utter and total betrayal yeah. and you see it in chicago yeah. you see it in chicago and um yeah that that's that's yeah i didn't right. jayvon i didn't go to the west side and i as you know there's only so much you can take
2: mm-hmm. right.
0: i mean i i i experienced it here and i just didn't feel like experiencing. Experiencing it in Chicago, if you know where I'm coming from. But go and read some more.
1: Beyond um, uh, the just clarified, he said, I was talking about black nationalism in particular, and that it is apparently more radical, but in essence disabled the movement by fragmentation and appearing the nature of things. This is the role I see Trotskyism has played over its life. Uh, Shantanu says, I completely agree with Jeremiah young people in South Asia have adopted the American liberal mindset, most likely from social media, without actually knowing where these ideas come from. What follows is the actual invention of issues which don't exist or aren't relevant in that country context, just in order to be able to start a movement for it.
0: Oh yes, go ahead, Kathy, I'm sorry.
1: I, there's still a lot to process, and I'm just really grateful to be part of the free school that, like, I feel like this method and sociology to even analyze Chicago first, and then to be able to situate, even do a little ethnographic study of the Platypus um, International Convention. It's all sort of something that I feel like um, it's it's a really wonderful training because I certainly think that um, I visited U Chicago before, and I feel like I had that feeling, but to really see it through these eyes and also to be able to um, piece together how that over these last two years being part of free school and having this, it's really helped me I feel like make sense of a lot of these sort of situations and something I feel like our group also when we went south to a place like Memphis, for example, also a city that when we first walked around and we arrived, it was a stormy and windy day. We were a little sleep deprived as well <laughs> trying to get there, but we had a feeling like I, I don't know if we had a like a certain kind of expectation would be like but we've certainly read about it about where it's the site of king's assassination it was the site of the sanitation strike it's also the home of the the blues and beale street and when we arrived it also felt very eerie maybe it was because it was a wednesday morning but it was a lot of us had said it felt a lot like buffalo or like rochester because of a lot of we, we maybe don't know all the details around its former industries and what it used to be, but um, a lot of things certainly stood out in terms of like, here was the site of a revolution and its next stages, like entering the stage of almost a Poor People's Campaign, even though it wasn't quite exactly what King imagined to be a Poor People's Campaign, but he certainly had to, he made a great effort in his you know, final days is like, that's the place I'm going to be. For us to visit the Lorraine Motel and the National Civil Rights Museum there, and um, I feel like I'm glossing over a lot of details, so definitely oh, jump ahead, in after. It's um, yeah. like, in terms of being able to go there and see sort of the neighborhood which surrounds the Larry Motel, it still sort of shook us because I feel like um, King may not have been very happy with the state of Memphis today. It may not have really um move forward since Mm -hmm. since that um i am a man sanitation strike like the Mm -hmm. the young people the young black kids and the families there and there was even a woman who was protesting the national civil rights Mm -hmm. museum because they have built such a like a shiny museum like we were behind this tour group of young students black students from cincinnati and it's a it's, it's very glossy but it also seems like the protests was about the fact that it almost feels like a gentrifying force or like it doesn't quite well, fit in. We Eddie, Eddie had a good formulation when he said in some ways, first of all, like Memphis, it actually really felt bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Eddie had the formulation where he was like, in some ways, Memphis is a city that really went downhill. And so they have they resorted to pimping out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why the woman is the only institution. But actually, I think I actually think the main theme from going to Memphis and Nashville was something you said, Doc, during your King um, your commemoration of King's um, birthday, where you said, "I don't know if America mm-hmm. and especially Black people have." Been able to heal from this assassination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, like, actually, the number, the thing that really hit me hard was the Stax Records Museum. Yeah. Because it's located in a neighborhood that's very black, very working class to this day. And in the museum, you could see, like, first of all, the whole story of Stax Records is really beautiful. Like, it was started by a bluegrass, a white guy named Jim Stewart, Mm -hmm. who was a bluegrass fiddler. Uh And he and his um, sister started a record, like just a record shop at first. And all the kids, like all these kids would come in and unlike other record stores, they could just play whatever record they wanted. So all day long, like they had quotes in the wall saying, like it felt like a library. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that in Memphis at the time, the public education was highly emphasized in music. Mm-hmm. So all the kids in the neighborhood, all these kids were in bands, they were doing this and that. Mm-hmm. And In the museum, they had a map showing that within the 10 block radius around what became Stax Records. Like that's where all the artists came from. Mm -hmm. Booker T of Booker T and the MGT was one block down. Who else was born in that neighborhood? Aretha Franklin. And what else is in that neighborhood? Mason Temple. Yeah. Where King gave his last speech. So you know, you see in that just in observing Stax, you know, the connection between music. Between yeah. the religious institutions, yeah. you're connecting the public public education system. Yeah. Jim Stewart, that founder of Stax Records, he is quoted saying, He said, I think King's assassination is what really destroyed Memphis. Yeah. It was the beginning of the end of Memphis, yeah. and it was the beginning of the end of Stax Records.
5: Yeah. yeah, he said,
1: After that, we could not recover because people were so terrified that before King's Assassination, Stax Records was a label that was hugely influenced by country, by gospel, by the blues. And it was very integrated, white and black, like in all honesty, and their quotes, like from all the black artists saying, Jim Stewart knew black music more than some black
5: people.
1: (laughs) And this is, you know, and Jim Stewart said, after King's Assassination, people couldn't trust each other anymore. Mm. That's crazy, a that's, a, that's a big problem, you know, generally yeah. now. You know? And in some ways I think it's connected to this thing of like black power.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: It's connected to like what happened after King's death.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, And it it's was really just, bad. you really felt the presence of the blues. And even in Nashville, like we were able to go to Jefferson Street which was like, it was the big, it was basically what made Nashville the music city because there were all these clubs. Like it is actually really beautiful because Jefferson Street was named after Thomas Jefferson. Wow. And it's an all black street clubs. It's like where everything's been happening, clubs and bars and businesses. And it's on this one street is where Fisk, Tennessee State University, which used to be wow. A&I, and there are. So there's three HBCUs on the street it's all clubs, and Sam Cooke, Jimi Hendrix got his start there, Aretha Franklin, Etta James, all these oh, artists no. would stop on the street to play, and no one knows about it. But we went into this small museum started by this, like, 80-year-old Black guy who never graduated high school, and he literally was a living example of, like, that song, Bathwater Blues." Because yeah. he talked about he's like, Oh yeah, like I live in this house where the backwaters would come up and we have to move out yeah. for two months. we go right back <laughs> into the
2: house and clean yeah. the inside of the house, wow. the oh, yeah. Of yeah.
1: yeah, paint green and just live back in there. Wow. And he talked about the sit-ins, he talked about participating. He was like, I didn't I wasn't sure if I was educated enough to be part of the sit-ins, but like I really wanted to be part of the sit-ins. But then he mainly talked about the music.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And he talked about, you know, he really just wanted to share with us the music and he, this museum is not even a real museum. Like it's not funded by Grant. He literally still works to this day to pay rent on the museum. He like, didn't own the house, he pays rent. And I say all this to just describe like, because also I feel like this what we saw in Memphis and Nashville, but Memphis in particular is connected to your observations of Chicago. And also what Kathy was saying where we were not, we were only able to even understand America, like the heart of some music also struggled because of preschool and because of Du Bois.
5: Mm -hmm. But I
1: also think there's something interesting in that we're surprised at how musical it was. Like it was just music, 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 it was about art. Like at Fisk we were able to see Aaron Douglas's murals Mm -hmm. where like, it was supposed to represent the five stages of liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what they are, I think you know how it was. Oh, I only know a couple of them, but I think it was science, drama, philosophy. History? <laughs> uh, like music and yeah. think art. So. But philosophy was one of them. Yeah, philosophy. And yeah. okay, the funniest thing was when we went to, we wanted to see the temple in Memphis. And And we they're very protective because they're very super active congregation still. So they were very protective of the place. They're like, you're not allowed to be on the ground at all. Um, We go to Fitz. Our tour guide is a junior at Fitz, me, Charles. You know, a very quirky guy, really friendly. He's a history major. He says actually there's only 25 history majors on our campus. Most of the most popular majors are business and biology, yeah, which tells you a lot. He loves Du Bois. Every time we would pass passing Du Bois that, he'd be like, I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and we're actually
4: supposed to mail him a Du
1: Bois hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> and he he was like, I you know, I was just making a conversation, so I was like, oh, what's your favorite historical like period? And he was like, oh actually I'm writing a paper about the civil rights movement. I love the civil rights movement. He said, "I love the idea of religion, Islamism." He's like most people talk about King. They talk about Ralph Abernathy. He's like, but actually, I'm really interested in something called like. He's like, I want to go into ministry. I'm really interested in actually, you know, have you ever heard of like, was it Christ, God, Church Church of the God in Christ? And we're like, yeah, we're just at Mason Temple in Memphis. I was like, oh, actually, I'm from Memphis. And he said, and actually, like, I wasn't going to bring it up, but my great great grandfather is actually Charles Harris Mason, the founder of Mason Temple.
2: Wow. Wow. So here we live,
1: our tour guide at this is literally the great great, or maybe great grandson, great great grandson of Charles Harris Mason, the founder of the Church of the God in Christ, <laughs> and the founder of Mason Temple, which was highly involved in the civil rights movement. And he's our tour guide. That's wow. wonderful. And we know we he was like a very, very interesting figure, like people, other people can share too, but kind of just painting the picture of our trip. I also feel like there's a connection to Chicago too, because at Stack Museum, Al Bell, who later became another founder of Stax Records, he said, he was like, I theorized that there's such thing as river culture, a culture of the Mississippi River that connects, um, that connects Memphis, St. Louis, Chicago, and,
9: where? New Orleans. New Orleans. I thought that was also really interesting and, and beautiful. And this one, it's a Native American part of like
0: you share share these waters in these rivers. Right. Yeah. That's what I grew up with with my mom and dad. We would go on these river trips up and down the East Coast. But they came from North Carolina, South Carolina. and so this is like oh. carrying information. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's a tr- yeah. true. Yeah. That
9: is
5: true. <laughs>
1: but there is definitely a sense of tragedy in a sense, even Jefferson Street in Nashville, it, it got destroyed. The reason why it no longer yeah. is what it is anymore is it got destroyed by an interstate. Oh. And, wow. and so, road. and yeah. even yeah. Memphis, like Beale Street where blues was born, Beale wow. yeah. Street is dead. Oh, like it yeah. is pimped out, as a tourist attraction.
2: I, yeah,
1: there aren't even that many tourists. Like we didn't really hear the blues. Yeah. Um, Wow. and yeah I, I just want my last thing is that after leaving Fisk I did when I was reflecting like I think the biggest sense I got was how important the task in preschool is yeah mm-hmm. because Charles like he was so it was so exciting to like see him and also other students at Fisk like in some ways there is still a memory like mm-hmm. a legacy of a certain type of education of an HBCU
5: mm-hmm.
1: but I did get the sense just that Like, I feel like in this time of crisis where there are, you know, gaps forming, some contradictions revealing itself more than others, I feel like there really is a task of being able to pursue, understand, and offer ideological clarity in these times. Like our task is to pry open those opening, like to pry open those gaps that are forming in a time of crisis, so that, you know, the possibility of, like the possibility of organic leadership the possibility of more like a movement being born, like young, all young people to be able to stand upon something mm-hmm. we build, yeah. not to arise. Yeah. And yeah, I, I really felt that because at Fisk, like the people there were really beautiful. Like you really got the sense of the potential of the future. You did, mm-hmm. you know. And but the thing that's missing is, I think, ideological clarity.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Like there has to be like a very conscious opening like mm-hmm. us prying open, mm-hmm. like prying open certain gaps off, like sharpening certain contradictions, mm-hmm. creating a certain clarity. But also, like I almost think mm-hmm. after King's assassination, what really got broken was what is a very natural intercivilizational unity. Mm-hmm. I think that is in some ways what was really also destroyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because Stacks in some ways, like Stacks for me felt like, it really felt like an interconnectedness of, Different traditions, bluegrass, country, Mm -hmm. gospel. Also, the other thing about Stacks Records is the very first room you walk into, it's not a room of records. It's not a room talking about Al Green. It's a recreation of a Black church. Stack Records Museum, they purposely make you first enter a log cabin church. They want you to know the spirituals. And they want you to know that American music is Black music. America, like America's greatest gift was the gift of black people when they came as slaves. And it was Lorenzo Washington of the Jefferson Street Sound Museum in Nashville who said he was like, if you think about it, like back on the slave plantation when slaves would be clapping and making a beat, the white master could not help but hear on his porch that beat. And if he was playing a fiddle or a guitar, he was unconsciously listening to the beat that was being set by black people. And So yeah, I just, there was a lot in the trip, and I think other people will fill it out, but I really left the South feeling like, well, we're doing, the free school is doing something good, it's doing something right, and the task of the battle of ideas in the time of crisis is so right, and I think you actually put it better, Doc. You said, you didn't say it as like a battle of ideas, you said knowledge will play a much more important role. Perhaps
2: mm-hmm. in any other historical
1: moment, mm-hmm. and you really get that. It's you really true. get that from from our trip too, especially mm-hmm. when we left this. You saw all of these bright-eyed young people with so much promise, and you're like, "What's the miss?" But mm-hmm. people, that's the thing. Something
0: missing. There's something wow. missing. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let, let me see if Alice wants to say something, and if Eddie
4: wants to say. I think Jeremiah is going to say something. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jerry. Go ahead. Well, yeah, just to add, I think I'm I'm technically from the South, but I don't think I really am from the South because I grew up in Dallas, which is a very cosmopolitan city, um, very suburban. But it was really humbling, I think, to go to Memphis and Nashville. Like despite the devastation and the disappointment of you know, like King's assassination and the destruction of the movement, all that, like, I do think that my, this is just like a sense that I have, but I do think that because the civil rights movement was strongest in the South, but it has still affected the way that people relate to each other. And the thing that we were constantly surprised by was how open people were to talking with us. Um, In a way that we had kind of forgotten that people could be open like that after having lived in Philly where people are much more, you know, like, yeah, there's not that, that, there's a base level of distrust, I think, amongst people and people are much more closed as a default. And I think for good reason. But I think, yeah, it it was just very humbling um, to actually get a taste of, yeah, like also, because I don't think it's just the Southern culture thing, but I do think that, especially because we were immersed in the music and the history, that it did feel like one of the great contributions of the civil rights movement was in the way that people related to each other and and their openness even to talking about like their history, where they come from, Mm -hmm. like whether it was like Lorenzo at the Jefferson Street Sound Museum. We also went to, like a photography collection by this <laughs> photographer named Ernest Withers, who we later learned was an FBI informant, but still had <laughs> photographs. <laughs> those <laughs> photographs were really beautiful, and, um, and the the guy who was who who manages the the collection, um, he he would, like we were talking, and he said like um, he he had these three pictures of the the Memphis strike and King's involvement in it and he was like that's me as a teenager standing like standing behind King like standing behind like Rob Abernathy and stuff and um, I think even like we were at like a uh, like a corner bakery or something before we left and we had this really long conversation with this <laughs> lady who worked Angie, this lady Angie who worked there and she was talking about like you know, I think she used to work at Vanderbilt, but like she talked about like just basically how the community has changed, like especially in terms of, she talked a lot about violence, how that's also changed and um, you know, like the, how basically like families have been destroyed, like this culture of actually raising children with the right values that's been destroyed mm-hmm. over generations and um, Well, actually yeah.
1: she said, it was interesting. She said, it came up because I asked yeah. her like, so, tell me your honest opinion about country music. Uh, (laughs) And she was like, I love country. She was like, I like country much more than hip hop.
5: mm, And she blamed, she was
1: like, how messed up is it that hip hop is a music based on lies Mm -hmm. rather than Mm truth?" She was like, you ha- you hear these rappers, they admit, they are admitting that they are lying, that they yeah. shot up this person, shot up that person. Yeah. She was like, but yeah. you
5: are, your yeah.
1: lies have a concrete effect on the youth. That's right. yeah. Yeah. And then she also said, yeah. and she, but she also was like, interesting when she talked about gun violence and carjackings, she was like, she actually said, she kind of blamed, she was like, I think the youth are too sheltered. She was like, the problem is, is that, they're kind of entitled. So they think that you can just do whatever you want mm-hmm. and not face repercussions. Like she was comparing how she came up mm-hmm. versus how the young people come up today. Yeah. And it kind of reminded me actually of China because I think in some yeah. ways, there's a certain, like, you gain a certain experience or value system under extreme cir- like circumstances of suffering yeah. mm-hmm. versus yeah. now I think China has to reckon with a change in values that they didn't anticipate.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but
4: yeah. Well,
1: I oh, also yeah. mention how Joe like he
8: gave us a ride. Yeah, yeah, it was really nice
4: because I, uh, I think Kathy mentioned it, like there was like a really bad rain the day we a got. Tornado. There. Yeah, was there was tornado. like a tornado yeah. when the day we got there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, and like so we were. Like, yeah. I, felt, I think we felt really bad because we were basically there until he was supposed to close. But he was oh. like, yeah, after he was supposed to close, he was like, yeah, I'll give you guys a ride. We're like, are you sure? Like, don't you have to go back home? Like, isn't there like, like I don't know, road conditions you have to be yeah. careful? He's like, no, no, no. He kept insisting that, to drive us back. And uh, Emily and Neri had to run back so we couldn't all fit in the car. But, uh, but nonetheless, yeah, I don't know. He was just like, it, it's kind of weird because yeah, like you're, like I feel like coming from Philly, we're so used to being like almost like okay. baseline, like not sure if people are gonna be open to talking with you. So not talk. Yeah. And <laughs> but yeah, and I think that was just like it was even it's very different, even from yeah, the environment that I was mostly used to and growing up in a place like Dallas, which was really interesting. And I think it's given me a new appreciation for the south. And um, I think the two things that I, I think two or three things that I also remembered distinctly were they talked about, so Stax Records, I don't think any of us really knew what it was before this trip, but they were the company behind um, Otis Redding, okay. Sam and Dave, um, the Staple Singers yeah. as well. Um, I think Aretha Franklin did like did some yeah. stuff with them. Yeah. Um, really cool. Poker T and the MGs. Um, Carla Thomas and Rufus Thomas. Oh, yeah, we learned yeah. the funky chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: we learned
4: the funky yeah. chicken. Oh, the
0: funky chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. About what about the Philly yeah. doll? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, we didn't know the
4: funky chicken existed, but... Um, we got so to learn the breakdown. The breakdown, okay. The break down. okay. okay. But, the really yeah, fascinating yeah. thing about it was, they talked to, it was actually, okay, the one thing was, I think Stacks was the most ideologically clear museum yeah. I've ever yeah. been to in yeah. my yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. That was really interesting. Uh, yeah. they went into the philosophical nature of soul music, of the yeah. gospels, mm-hmm. of the, so, like as, as people mentioned, the sociological ethnographic nature of the river culture and how that contributed to all this, but they talked about distinctly the the differences between Motown and the Memphis sound, yeah, yeah. and also they talked about the Philly sound as well. So
0: what, what did they say what a difference
4: is? Well, they said that you <laughs> know about Barry Bordy was you know the the main yeah. person behind Motown and yeah. how um, he was very had a lot of business acumen, and he had a whole vision for what Motown would be, and that um they were i, I don't know there may have been a little bit of competition between Memphis and That's Motown weird. for yeah. sure, but they were saying that. Motown, like they were very uh, focused on having a cross audience appeal, you know, appealing to white, to white people as well. Um, and so it was very, yeah, as Kathy said, the sound was a lot more polished. Whereas with the Memphis singers and artists in the studio, they were deliberately there there was a quote that I really liked where they were saying, in the the sounds of the, the singers and the music of the Memphis sound, there's a lot more of a straining. Like they deliberately made it so that the singers would have to strain to reach the right notes. Really? And as a result, the sound was a little bit more raw. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: like there's a tension. Yeah, in
4: sound. Um, yeah, there's a there's tension. More of a tension. Right? So, yeah. yeah, but the interesting thing was, uh, as Emily was saying, um, part of what was broken after King's assassination was the collaboration between white and black whether in and like on the sound recording or the artists themselves, like one of the main guitarists was this guy named Steve Proper, who was seen as like one of the greatest, like I don't know, guitarists in, in history, I guess, who I had no idea about, but like, yeah, they talked about how like, even like what was interesting was like, like Memphis was like a little bit more raw, um, but despite that, like it was this collaboration between white and black in Memphis that uh, allowed for that sound to, to be nurtured Um, and yeah it was interesting just because they were also saying like yeah they didn't have as much of like a a clear broader business strategy which is what led to that as well but so that was one thing that was really interesting and then I think the other thing in terms of art so um, as was mentioned we went to Fisk and we got to see in person the the Aaron Douglas murals which I think that was a really special moment because like I don't know, like I was just remembering being at Cornell and like there's no real culture there I feel like or I mean yeah it's like you can tell that you're on like a nice campus but I, I just was picturing what it meant to be a young like 18, 17 year old and to go through college and to just have that like one of, one of who I think is like the greatest artists in like, American history just have that on the wall, you know, and um, what was interesting was the juxtaposition of that with we later went to um, the like the art museum in Nashville, Frist Art Museum. And the entire this is yeah, where things were really also where things were really sad, where the entire first floor of this big art museum, like one of the big art museum in Nashville, was devoted to um, basically, like you know, Cuban art. Well, they claimed but, that it was
1: all of contemporary Cuban art. Right, but... right.
4: But the entire, the entire. Actually, it was impressive because I had never, also never encountered an art exhibit that was so ideologically clear, <laughs> in, in the sense of being completely, basically devoted to regime change. In Cuba. Yeah. That was the entire purpose of the art exhibit, yeah. and it was just, it was just, it just felt so out of place with everything else that we experienced with nashville and memphis um there was another exhibit on like a higher floor for this artist named alma thomas
1: yeah um
4: yeah yeah, yeah. and her art her art reminded us a lot of your art Seraphina. yeah because um, just the way she was working with colors and all of that but it, it was just like that juxtaposition of whether it was like fisk with Aaron douglas versus like this like, like it, all of it all of the art for the Cuban stuff it was just so ugly it made you still feel so bad inside just like on a space on like, an emotional level you know just, like and all of us like you know you know how, like art museums they have like the like a notebook that you can write in so all of us were like we think that like this disrespect like the Cuban Revolution and all that stuff but um do you you know keep afro cuban music
0: yeah
8: yeah Yeah.
2: Yeah. i mean yeah i mean i know
4: a lot of people have have but that was just something that stood out to me definitely.
13: yeah literally i think all the work in the cuban exhibit was like Around themes of like being in limbo or like yeah, stuck yeah, in the yeah, middle between Cuba and the US, <laughs> like very vehemently against Cuba. Um, it was pretty disgusting. But actually, what I was most shocked and surprised by during this trip was when we went to go see bluegrass.
5: Yeah. And
13: we had heard country at one point in Nashville, and that was, you know, like fine. and a honky beat talk. and we went to honky tonk and it was good to listen to like good entertainment I guess but then the next day we went to um here bluegrass and it was like a bluegrass jam at this small oh, tavern-esque crazy. place yeah. in downtown Nashville and it was a bunch of rednecks in like <laughs> a circle with like guitars and banjos and yeah. singing and playing and at first, I wasn't really paying attention because I didn't really care about blue gas. But the more I heard, the more I was pretty captivated by the depth of like yes. sorrow and beauty yeah. and like struggling and trying to build a life. And um, I think in some ways, it really rounded up the entire trip where we began in Memphis at the Stacks Records yeah. Museum and learning about the spirituals that Mm-hmm. um the black slaves i guess start singing and in many ways i saw i guess the true unity that was possible and mm-hmm. perhaps at one point kind of existed between yeah. these rednecks and these former slaves mm-hmm. singing about struggling through life and mm-hmm. living and um like that was truly remarkable and that's not something i think people especially in the north at all talk about because we were taught to look down on yeah. southern or rural rednecks. Yeah. And um,
2: yeah. that
13: was truly eye-opening. And if anything, I was like, bluegrass is really true, fine art, a true high form of yeah. art that a white culture has produced.
5: Mm-hmm.
13: And um, yeah. seeing that next to this deep black culture was mm-hmm. um. Yeah, eye opening about the potential for the future, I guess, in today's time. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: very cool. I will say that the, the song, okay, I, very quickly, the song during that bluegrass show that like finally snapped something it had been an hour, and I was like, I don't understand, and I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. But then finally, they started, the, the tone started shifting from this like high strung feet to this slower, sombers, and it, it was because they were singing a song from, I believe, it was some once by johnny cash but it's called darkest dungeon it's about coal mining oh, yeah. it's like seek now your fortune in a mine i pity the man who will have to move my bones aside when they're digging my bones in the coal and it's like my soul will blacken like coal and finally like first of all i heard the lyrics clearly through and then second i, I it just hit it it was that moment that went out for me you know, that you described like it, it matched the sort of somber tone of the the spiritual view and you know, the way it's, yeah, it's become something much deeper in all the music. All the wow. But where are you oh, oh,
5: going?
0: Alice Nori, whichever one wants to go. Yeah.
1: go ahead, um, I think before we started this trip, I think just to start from the beginning of like how this trip came about, but also our preparation and going into this trip. Um, there are a couple of reasons we chose to go to Memphis and Nashville. Like part of it was for us who had just finished the VLK, Bandung event was sort of like our treat to um, take a break, bond with each other. But also the other piece is um, both for uh, Nashville to essentially go back to our roots of W.E.B. Du Bois mm-hmm. after this event.
5: Um,
1: and then the other piece as well of being students in our 20s of trying to figure out what our responsibility is in the world and what is possible. Um, Memphis was also another location or Memphis and Nashville were locations where you could look to students like James Lawson and Diane Nash. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was a main emphasis for, those were the major mm-hmm. emphasis for us to go to Memphis and Nashville for the five days that we went. Before we went, we also read a chapter from Du Bois's autobiography and it was called Going South. And it talks about his journey of growing up Mm -hmm. in Great Barrington, uh, Massachusetts, and then eventually um, being influenced by the principal of his high school uh, Mm -hmm. to pursue essentially a liberal arts education rather than an education that's for agriculture or industry.
5: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's how he ends up at Fisk, um, but also because like Fisk was more accessible to him at the time. Uh, and I think there were a couple of themes that stood out to us in that chapter. Um, one is actually something that we talked about, which is Du Bois and his belief that knowledge—it was knowledge that would be able to um, really change the world in terms of, you know, pulling black people <coughs> out of ignorance or poverty, mm-hmm. of resolving issues of violence, and I guess he didn't quite say war at that in that part. Um, and then there was also. Um, the piece of going to Fisk and for him, like seeing black people from these different facets of the country, but all like what they shared was that they were black and they had similar aspirations of you know seeking truth and knowledge um, and really having this opportunity to do so. And so that was the context in which we went to Memphis and Nashville. And I think those themes definitely resonated for many of us on this trip. Um, like Jeremiah was saying, when we step into Kravath Hall, Kravath? Kravath or Kravath? Kravath Hall of Fisk University. Like, I think a lot of us like just pause for a second and I actually heard Jeremiah gasp <laughs> um, because we were seeing, yeah, Aaron Douglas's murals in an administrative building in Kravath Hall on yeah. Fisk. This campus. Um, and also, as we were moving through Memphis and Nashville, you could see stirring connections. Like mm-hmm. um, Fisk University, their main gallery is called the Carl Van Bechten. Mm-hmm. And he was a man that essentially was very um, sympathetic to, or not just sympathetic, but actually saw a lot of beauty and value in Black arts. Um, he was also the one who uh, had convinced. Georgia O'Keeffe to talk to her husband, Mm -hmm. Alfred Stieglitz to um, contribute to the gallery. Mm -hmm. Um, Alfred Stieglitz was, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, he was a photographer um, and really established uh, photography as a fine art. Um, But, uh, where was I? Oh yeah, with the gallery, Carl Van Vechten, and then also like Aaron Douglas later who, Aaron Douglas, who was the um, who is the person, is essentially started the art department at Fisk.
5: Um,
1: and to see his murals, and then also to see that like these connections of Aaron Douglas having um, created pictures for the Crisis magazine for the NAACP, um, knowing Du Bois, knowing Langston Hughes, and his time in New York with Harlem Renaissance, etc. Like all these different individuals that we've sort of we've discussed and Um, you could really see what Du Bois was saying in that chapter of Going South, a civilization and potential, and Mm -hmm. potentiality or potentiality. Yeah, like all these different artists, um, students and leaders of um, the like sit-in movements and national, et cetera, being really woven into this fabric. Mm -hmm. And then when we were at uh, nashville and went to the Frisk museum like jeremiah mentioned alma thomas
5: mm-hmm.
1: um we found out her connection also to fisk mm-hmm. uh, and this was like uh in, in that she was friends with i'm forgetting the name of David Driscoll. driscoll. yeah david driscoll mm-hmm. who was later um like succeeded aaron douglas by I think, 20 30 years and led the galleries as well
5: mm-hmm.
1: and he was friends with alma thomas mm-hmm. who had her exhibit at Um, the Carl Van Mm -hmm. Vechten. So there are all these different connections and we, like Emily was saying, we could really only make sense of it by starting with Du Bois and starting Mm -hmm. with the Mm -hmm. preschool. And then also this last thing I was gonna mention is like this thread of like, what is the potential and also responsibility for us who have seen this or borne witness to Mm -hmm. um, this tradition that we're viewing the world, but also seeing that potential Memphis and Nashville despite like a lot of the tragedy that's also like specifically also in Memphis as well Mm -hmm. um because both at SACS or the Carl Van Vecten or even as we were moving about Memphis and Nashville there were these ties between black and white but also with us as Asians like navigating the south like you saw this history where that unity was possible.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And this unity that was based actually more so on community and class because mm-hmm. at Stax, but also as we were visiting Memphis for in the first couple of days, mm-hmm. um, like black and white were a lot closer than they are in a place compared to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Like the first place we went to was a Gus's fried chicken.
5: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Which was like, it's <laughs> <his laughs> thing. Super special, I think, for like to start, but the most like the part that stood out the most was really like black and white people working class there. Mm -hmm.
5: Um,
1: and not just like class struggle, but also class unity in that sense. Um, it felt much more integrated, like a lot of us opined on like what we felt about relations there, Mm -hmm. and it felt much more integrated than um here. But that also shows like the possibilities and that by looking to history, we're not only, we're learning both like the actions that, or actions and responsibilities individuals took, but also what we can build off of um, or revive, or even like, as Emily was saying, like really pry open and pull to our current times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of us like came back also with like, bringing back some of this stuff. Because, like, down there, was, like, simple of, uh, like, this openness that was returned to us. Um, like, we carry that back here as well. Of Like, even simple things like, yes, ma'am, or... <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: but it actually makes sense of how that's been carried because this is something that Emily was saying where you have also, often mentioned how Black people in Philly are Southern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also, like, true because when we were talking, to Angie, who's this uh, worker at um, the last bakery they we went to. Emily was like, I could also see her as being someone that we would meet in or yeah. run into. In yeah. Philly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was, I think this also goes back to what we were talking about in, with like Platypus and the relation with, mm-hmm. with free school and mm-hmm. what's possible in terms of the work that needs to be done and our responsibilities of like pushing forward this history and tradition
9: um go
5: ahead
1: (laughs) yeah i feel like when people were so i guess eager or like very excited to talk to us and i think partially maybe it was because it was like seven young asian
2: people But
1: then by <laughs> the end, <of> the <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, are they Latino
2: or is they Asian?
1: Like, I think people were like, not really sure what to make of it. But
2: um,
1: but I think the thing that we are wondering is, like, oh, like, having lived through the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and having actually, like, experienced that or had it handed down to you as opposed to, like, a lesson in a history book, have you have people in the South or people specifically in Memphis like had to reckon with it more, like work through it and think what are the true lessons that we have to learn? Like, what do we actually need to carry with still instead of just, I think going by the, I don't know, the top down assumptions or the things that you're taught to think of Mm -hmm. as the civil rights movement, where even though there was, yeah, like I think a sense of tragedy of the incompleteness of the movement in Memphis, you Mm -hmm. can still really, feel and like sense the living memory of it Mm. that they haven't let go of it and that they know that this is their history and they want to hang on to it whereas i think in nashville it was a little like the history of the sit-ins i think was not as apparent in the city overall which also seems like it was going through a lot of change where like people from california were moving in and buying all the houses and like broadway was really, really like vibrant, but there are a lot of like young people partying, basically play, playing like pop rock songs. And so the honky tonk place that we had gone to was, I think the most like authentic remnant of the original Broadway. Cause the locals said like, basically they don't go to Broadway anymore. The traffic's awful. It's just like young people, like young new transplants.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but the honky tonk place was still like much more, I think honky tonk, but still, the contrast between that place and Station Inn with the bluegrass was really different because the honky tonk place was like, it was really full. Like people were just crammed in and then people would be like pushing each other to go to the bar and get drinks and their mm-hmm. bachelorette parties and like bachelorette girls like dating around. Whereas at Station Inn, it was like a sit-down place and there are a lot of families. And so they there wasn't any like ushering or I guess like security or anything, but people just filed in and they're sitting at their seats. And there was clearly like a sense of respect where you don't stand and block people's view. You sit, you have a seat, you like get your popcorn for the family and you're all there to like actually enjoy the music. Mm -hmm. And there was like, it was a jam. So there are a lot of like musicians who I don't know if they like had known each other well previously, Mm -hmm. but there was like a young man who seemed like he was like taking, he was really relishing in the attention (laughs) and he was kind of like taking up an inappropriate amount of space. Mm -hmm. And then one of the older guys like took him out to the Back, it like, <laughs> this, it's like, a little, like, yeah, I was very intense. He was like, "This is my gym, my inn. do get out." Like, <laughs> I was like, this is the ethic, Like, this is yeah, but, there, yeah. but there actually was like an ethics to it, where yeah. it was like clearly like this. This man has like transgressed yeah. what is normal, like what's actually fair, like how you actually behave in like this bluegrass setting of like. I guess like being aware of one another as musicians and like respecting the piece that you each have to play. So I think that was really interesting, like just to see that, especially because Station Inn I think was one of the last like remaining original buildings in this area of the Gulch, which I think had become very hip and like gentrified with I guess like the new image of Nashville. Um, And so, yeah, you see that there is a struggle to preserve like parts of history and to actually like carry them through
5: mm-hmm.
1: but and so yeah like the Woolworths that the mm-hmm. main incident happened in like is being renovated into a theater and there's only like a very small plaque mm-hmm. um, and like a really small area dedicated to it but at the same time like the National Public Library had an exhibit mm-hmm. and they had like materials that we had never seen before like we hadn't been able to find mm-hmm. like there was documentary footage of like the actual Nashville students, like the strategy planning mm-hmm. and the workshops that James Lawson would do, mm-hmm. which I don't think you can, you can find it online because, really well, there's a QR code sheet with a lot of, a lot of the material in that collection was like digitized or available online, but the Diane Nash one I don't think is, and that's why we watched it, but you can see like, how, yeah, it was made like at the time, I think it was CBS, they covered it, but it's really valuable because you see like people from the community, like students from all over and they like, they're so serious and strategic about what they're doing. Like they plan, they go, they do the sit-ins they're like, don't run, walk with purpose, walk in like groups of like three, any larger than that will seem threatening but any less than that, like you're vulnerable one person speaks for the whole group. And then after you're done, you report back to the church and you report what happened at every single sit-in that you're able to see like, oh, this is how people respond to nonviolence. This is how like, we can understand and study and overcome this. And yeah, it was like really, just really impactful because I think for a lot of us, we've been interested in studying the civil rights movement for a long time. Like we've been trying to read the speeches. We have some familiarity with some of the leaders, but there are some things that like, you can only know if you come across it by chance or if you go like to the source in Nashville and also see like what has become of this history and what people are making of it now. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly going to Fisk meant a lot. Like when we read I Go South, like the young young (laughs) Bois, who's grown up in New England, like he is proud of the education that he's received. And he goes South because he says like, I need to know like what my people have come out of. I need to know. Mm And yeah, just I think that's striving and the peers that he describes being mm-hmm. at FIS, yeah. where one of them becomes like the first and only black doctor in like the entire state of Kentucky or something,
5: mm-hmm.
1: and one of them like marries Booker T. Washington, and so mm-hmm. but all of them are like single-mindedly like devoted not to their own self gain mm-hmm. or like their self like their own ambition, mm-hmm. but to actually contribute something to their people. Um, And I think that's why the Aaron Douglas murals were so inspiring because, I don't know, they're just like these figures and they're doing simple things. Like one of them is like looking into a telescope. Mm -hmm. One of them is like holding a skull and you know that it's like meant to represent like the theater, literature, Mm -hmm. like Shakespeare. And you get a sense of like, I think like the classics, like the eternal questions, the eternal classics, Mm -hmm. And there are like these shooting stars that are falling.
5: Mm -hmm.
1: And yeah, I think just seeing that and then feeling how du Boisian it was, but then also knowing that Aaron Douglas, like, he was at that department in Fisk yes. for so long. And Miss Lakeisha, who gave us the tour of the Van Vechten Galleries, like, she knew what to emphasize, like, what was meaningful, like, what she brought out, I think, from Aaron Douglas, and also when she mentioned the Alma Thomas exhibit, mm-hmm. was that these were people who were artists, and they're brilliant, passionate artists who had, like, a calling but also they wanted to live a life of service.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And they felt that, and like they dedicated their lives to that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, yeah, it was really, and you could also see that in her, I think where she was at Tennessee State, and she was like, oh, like Fisk just has a way of like calling mm-hmm. you to it. Like when you have, like when it's your time or when like you have a mission.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, like you could tell how like dedicated she was to her mm-hmm. students and, like everything um yeah and I think just how like clear she was on a lot of things and so it felt like like everybody else has been saying like I think there is a feeling of like recognition Mm
5: -hmm. amongst
1: like the people that we met in the south and also what we were seeing and like recognition of like oh like this is what it has been this is what it could be but also without the free school like we won't be able to get all the way there.
5: (laughs) Okay. Let Eddie
8: speak. Oh, Eddie, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm hard to say guys. Go ahead, ahead, Eddie. I'm sorry, (laughs) man. Yeah, of course, I was very eager and like ready to immerse myself in the history of civil rights. But something I was real hyped about as well were rednecks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not not, not just like some kind of like fascination, but like when uh, when reading uh, Black Reconstruction, Du voice really uh, laid out the the uh condition of not, not just the black slave but the white worker yeah. uh, who was integral yeah. to keeping American society as it was. Uh and it was real clear to me uh how Du Bois uh, uh em- emphasized that uh uh w- the unity needed uh was the only way forward. Yeah. And uh really like Slavery was was terrible, but then and even uh, still now, like the condition of like the white, uh, the poor white person in America is not too different from the poor black person or any other uh, kind of person. Uh, and so I was very excited to just uh, get to know these these, uh, these kind of people. And uh, it, of course it was really pronounced in the bluegrass uh, concert how these were like uh, obviously not exactly the same, but we, we're still like one in one and the same people. I even I even felt that like wow, you know, uh, me I I go to college. Uh, I'm Mexican. It's like you're taught to that you have more in common and and your interests are more aligned with like the educated white person. Yeah. But in actuality, yeah. I like I felt much more like comfortable and felt much closer. To like these like random redneck dudes singing <laughs> singing sing about sorrow, singing about yeah. working in the mines. Mm-hmm. And It's like uh, not especially uh uh Mexicans who you know also have like a ranch lifestyle yeah. Who, yeah. Yeah. who have striving for for land and yeah. Yeah. even now work 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 in mines like their conditions are like like so similar and so same and I I think it is a a, a convergence of like all working people. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, but uh, yeah, wow. The, the the bluegrass even remind me of uh, Mexican style music called corridos, which were uh, came about uh, to like tell the, the stories of the Mexican Revolution uh, in song, yeah. uh, and the way that they were telling story in, in song there as well. Uh, and so uh, seeing this like on- oneness in people, like it became uh, so uh, so pronounced how just how deep things. Uh, vision was to uh, really tear down uh, the color line and expand the hearts of people so that you could uh, tackle our identical issues, our, our shared issues, nice. which were, uh, yeah, and and so, uh, what was I going to say, yeah, that, that was, uh, that was very deep to me to uh, feel, uh, feel like, wow, you know, I, I don't we're not really talking we're not, I'm just i just maybe I, should, I just have to be, be standing next to you but like I feel that like your heart is like more open to me mm-hmm. than I don't know i, I don't know disrespect to respect any random person black white or whatever that I might find in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. uh and I think that is a, a a consequence of the the civil rights movement mm-hmm. uh, and so uh maybe someone some, a redneck right there might not necessarily have like the deep ideological clarity mm-hmm. uh of the world situation and their position in, in society, mm-hmm. but I think their like heart is like so so much more primed uh to uh, mm-hmm. ad- advance ad- advance the world and be one with others mm-hmm. than maybe someone i i I don't know some young person that happens that I happen to know be real educated and knowledgeable mm-hmm. about about the world and or it might even be you know actively trying to make it better
2: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let me call on hey, Shan. Sophie.
2: Yeah,
5: well
0: I Why don't you tell everybody where you're from?
1: (laughs) I'm from Mississippi, but I was born in Memphis and I lived outside like 30 minutes from Memphis my whole life. But I'm my heart just feels so touched by this conversation because um in the South you definitely get the sense that you are you are left behind, people, and um, I think um the reason like the people you guys sent were so interested in talking to you because I'm sorry, I don't
5: know. <laughs> I mean, but, um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I was reminded um I came to plaque at the moraine. I think it says we'll take the dreamer and sleep and see what
7: becomes of his dream. So, mm-hmm. oh.
5: uh.
7: And
1: um you like you guys said, Memphis feels eerie. Like even the downtown, which is the most vibrant part of the city, there's so many like empty buildings and they all used to be where people gathered to listen to music. And it was a city where you went from like rural Mississippi, little Tennessee to become a musician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to go on too long. I don't know why this conversation made me so emotional, but um, like even um, the way I grew up, like people have the sense that their history isn't important to the rest of the world. <laughs> and even going to the Delta. Which is the birthplace of blues. Um, yeah. It's so sad. So many people have moved away. Um, people still come, but they're left pretty disappointed by what's left. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what gives me a lot of hope from you guys going there is. Um, the fact that the South has a lot to teach yes, us and yes, yes. and the rest of the country, and I was reminded of Du Bois's um, and this was a black Folk the way he describes the South and how it, you still feel it today. It's like a place who um, its history is so incomplete, and you feel like the horror of. Uh, the antebellum period of the lynchings, um, Mm -hmm. you still feel it, and um, James Baldwin saying like the reckoning of this country will be in the South, I think is so, so important for us to understand. Um, Yeah, I'll stop there. Mm -hmm.
6: Um, all I wanted to add was uh, I, I've been very hurting hearing about this right now in terms of bluegrass music because it reminded me of the connection. What? Well, I was going to say going to bluegrass and jazz jams in my when I was a teenager kind of in that <laughs> sense and so hearing about the kind of jam etiquette in that sense, of, but also that. You you were mentioning I guess the term redneck came up so there's a lot of different originations of the term but the one that I like is the one that it's the coal miners and the red handkerchiefs that they wore that they were socialists
2: Mm -hmm. and so that's
6: you know in other words the songs that you uh Kathy you were hearing them uh sing they're like labor songs basically Mm -hmm. that have been passed down and so, you know, the connection between, I guess, bluegrass and jazz is that this is a, like, working class music,
5: mm-hmm. right?
6: Mm-hmm. It's a it's a people's music that's really origination. It's one that's very communal. And if you go to it, yeah. every bluegrass jam I've ever gone to, I didn't know one person there. And they put me, like, right in the middle. Like, you know, like, <laughs> you, you're going to sit right next to me. And that's and so. part not all correct. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs>
5: oh, oh yeah.
3: yeah, yeah.
6: I Well, I like, play guitar, so going there was this whole thing of like, to me, I that's why it was very important to hear that that's what everybody gravitated towards, which should make sense. That that, that you guys went. Yes, this is this makes sense here. Let mm-hmm. yeah. me Um, I
1: know I'm ahead of me. No, no, no. But yeah, I appreciate everybody's stories. I appreciate everybody's travel. I think that's not to rush the point, but that it is significant to go um, and visit um, because like the kind of conversation we're having about, okay, well, where does this kind of, well, it doesn't feel like the struggle is really kind of ended in Philly. But I really do think like that's because of the free school. in a sense, can pull out the essence of struggle that we see in other people, um, that other people can't see in themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I'm serious. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, like, they can't, they don't know, or they
5: haven't.
1: It's like an interesting dynamic, basically, Mm -hmm. Um, at least in my standpoint and being at the church or whatever. and it's the fact that there is still the presence of uh, at least speaking with the truth and saying what's right, that um, there's that sense for me in the way I speak that, that you can struggle and stuff like that. But so what you're saying, um, Sophie, um, uh, that's kind of, I just wanted to add that to what you're saying. Cause I feel like in these places whether that be in Chicago, Pittsburgh, Philly, Mm -hmm. Memphis, down the river, and so on. There'll be these stories, there's like this essence. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think that what you guys also are doing is contributing to the 10th anniversary. There's a lot of things um, that I was thinking about in lieu of preparation. Um, and, And that includes basically like, to say it succinctly, I don't think that without the free school we can bring out the truth in this time in a better way. Um, And I think that though these people in their different ways, like okay, people in Philly are definitely mean, <laughs> but <laughs> really? but it's just, but it's like it's but at the end of the day, right? It's it's not solely exactly what people say, but you gotta kind of see what yeah. they do. Yeah, yes. but
3: so that's all, that's all on the
1: table with everything. Yes. Um, but I'm just saying that to say that in different ways, and and in everybody's, and I'm talking about in terms of like the rednecks those people that we won't see or know those kids that we are always passing through like the Charles or whatever or the people who are Charles's friends or the teachers that you know all these people and all those stories that in the, and in fact we do fight for and mm-hmm. in fact is why I'm coming to the tree school and why it really means anything to me mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we're we're gonna, I think it's easier um, to strive for them, to fight for them, to know that their um, sorrows are heard and their histories can be spoken. Oh, wow. yeah. um, but I just appreciate everybody's trips. Yeah. I wish I was there, I'm jealous.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, May.
1: Well, I, I was gonna say, going back to our earlier conversation, like, what is the role of intellectual, the intelligentsia? Mm-hmm but it really is to see something in the people. I I mean, like to see their potential. And even we've been trained in the preschool to see people in a certain way, to see their art and culture as worthy of uh, celebration and as a foundation for the future. Um, Like I was just thinking this idea of a nation and potentiality. I mean, America is really a nation and potentiality, Mm -hmm. Um, but knowing where to look. I just wanted to read a paragraph from The Dark Princess.
3: um,
1: Uh, and it's it's the context of um, Cotilia sending it this to Matthew. They're having a debate oh. about
2: yeah, <laughs> I, I mean about
1: you know where will revolution happen? Who will be at the vanguard? Uh, what is the path to struggle? Is it rural? Is it urban? But.
0: Mike, could you tell everybody what The Dark Princess oh God, well, too, is? Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time you're done. Yeah, but,
1: yeah <laughs> right. Uh, no, it's, it's a novel uh, by Du Bois about basically about how the Black freedom struggle uh, is like one with the world anti-colonial struggle. It's about mm-hmm. uh, a romance between an Indian princess who's seeking freedom for her people. And uh, an African, a young African American man, who's also looking to liberate his people and understanding how uh, it will be done, but also the deeper dimensions of this connection, uh, how it transverses time and geography and history, and just how eternal it is. Uh, but it's a truly beautiful book. It's also an allegory for the anti-colonial struggle, for the leadership, uh, for the ways they're working out these questions of Afro-Asian unity, but also communism. You know, the relationship between the anti colonial struggle and the world communist movement. And what is the role, what does civilization mean? You know, what role do do the people play in building civilization? Who creates art and culture? Uh, And so I just wanted to read this paragraph. Dearest, in spite of all you say, I believe, I believe in men. I believe in the unlovely masses of men. I believe in that prophetic word which you spoke in Berlin and which perhaps you only half believed yourself. And why should I not believe? I have seen slaves ruling in Chicago and they did not do nearly as badly as princes in Russia. Gentle culture and the beauty and courtesies of life, they are the real end of all living, but they will not come by the dreaming of a few. Civilization cannot stand on its apex. It must stand on a broad base supporting its inevitable and eternal apex of fools. The tyranny of which you dream is the true method, which I too envisage, but choose well the tyrants. There is eternal life. And this is the part I really, how truly you have put it. Workers unite, men cry, while in truth, always, Thinkers who do not work have tried to unite workers who do not think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only working thinkers can unite thinking workers. Yeah. 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 I just, I just thought clean. that was so, I mean, yeah, and it's just so beautiful. And I just had one other thing I've been thinking about, just this new wave of gentrification. Yeah. It's just like an anti-people thing. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like these cities were built by the working class. That's why they're so beautiful and uh, there's a soul to them and there's a spirit. Uh, and, and that's why these revolutionary movements have come here and thrive here, but this new way, like Nashville, it's this meds and eds thing, and this is linked to the shift to the knowledge economy, mm-hmm. who will be, who will have jobs in the knowledge economy and university educated people, everyone else can go to hell, basically, right. the, they, they can, you know, every, robots can do everything else, we don't need the working class, they, they don't matter, uh, and I'm just, I mean, because you had said knowledge is so important, and I'm just thinking about that shift and what it means. And you know, what is the future for this country if this is where, and then, I mean, this is also what Trump was saying. We're talking about Trump was speaking truth. He was saying, bring the manufacturing back, <laughs> yeah. bring the jobs back.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but then also knowledge, the other paradox of all this is like true knowledge comes from the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is also created by the people. It belongs to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, true knowledge comes from the people. So. I don't know, I was just thinking about that because the way they're building the city, they're building cities into huge universities, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mm -hmm. where like the, like you're saying the the Chicago, it's almost, you can also, nowadays you can tell the fate of a city by its university, you know, how prestigious it is, Mm -hmm. what role it's playing, how Mm -hmm. interconnected, that's the strategy, and then hospitals also, which Mm -hmm. is another paradox because so many hospitals. People are sicker than ever, yeah. and they're getting worse yeah. and
11: worse. Right, education,
1: right. As, you
11: know. I know the truth yeah. Trump told about Fauci. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But just this. I mean, also the class character of knowledge these days. How bourgeois bourgeoisification of the Negro intellectual.
2: My favorite. <laughs> oh, My favorite. Wow. My favorite. <laughs>
5: Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my goodness!
1: So I just mean that that process of uniting the the intellectual with the people and the people becoming intellectual. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking in in, in
0: these descriptions. Can I just say one yeah. thing, if you don't mind? Yeah. Um, you know, um, just on this thing of knowledge. Yeah. Knowledge has a productive force. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
5: yeah. Not
0: just in terms of technology, right. But the whole realm of knowing as a productive force. Yes. And even more than that, as a humanizing force. Right. Mm-hmm. We're, this is why when I was saying, um, there are contradictions here. They can't decide the direction of human knowledge. Right, they right, want to. Right, 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 yeah. We've all experienced it yeah. in these yeah. no good universities, yeah. but, uh, but it's bigger than them. And that, that's, knowledge will play a big role in the yeah. future. And I I agree with Serafina one thousand percent, but we need free schools. We need people studying and Mm -hmm. debating and giving the confidence. One of the things that mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of people say, oh, I can't come to the free school. I don't understand what you all are talking about. Mm -hmm. And to which I always answer, "How do you know?" <laughs> You've never been there. <laughs> you never came, and like Jail, and she's the youngest member of the free school. <laughs> and um, but I, I think that um, I think we're in a fight with them. This is why this whole question of the liberals, what the right, liberals right, have right, become, right, right, right. Liberal. Mm-hmm. and just like you read from Du Bois, we mm-hmm. want knowledge to be the property of humanity yeah. also, give it back, yeah, give it back. Right, right, right,
1: right. well also the other thing is almost like i mean historically it's almost like money and knowledge are opposite
2: yeah. <laughs> i mean it's like
1: actually i'm glad to hear it was beer and pizza i would have I, I, I think it would have suspicious. been very suspicious yeah it would have yeah. been i mean if you're then i mean who is funding you and why and you know i mean there's yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 but i mean it's it's like this thing you you can have like even i mean talking about preschool we don't have money we've never had money but we've had ideas we haven't needed money you know we we the ideas are more precious than any money that's but, not, yeah that's true you know knowledge is so <laughs> tied up with money and ultimately more oh god yeah. that's yeah. the real uh end game of all of this oh, no. um, but
3: but you were going I think you could are wrapping up. So if you want to me No, let we're not No. No.
2: No. not
1: Thanks so much of you guys, and the whole the whole discussion of your trips everything about, about culture and community, mm-hmm. I, it resonates so deeply. It's opening my eyes. because like I think I've been living in the San Francisco Bay Area oh, for like what, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Massive mm. education. is so already mm. still going on, and it's, it's just absolutely disgusting. How? Uh, Jimmy Dore, anyone watch Jimmy
2: Dore? Yeah. You want
3: to see yeah. what the Democratic yeah. Party is about? You yeah. My yeah. state, where the governor is Democratic, yeah. all the people, yeah.
1: executive, yeah. the Senate, and everything, the, the legislators completely controlled by the Democratic mm. Party, yeah. and what it is complete, unaffordable housing, yeah, right. everybody, can right. nobody afford housing, whole gentrification, plus, you know, endless fracking contracts, and mm-hmm. yada, 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 mm-hmm. it's just no, no, no universal, uh, uh health care, like, mm-hmm. the, the we, mm-hmm. thought, we thought about, you know, for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's, it's, anyway, so, so all the certifications, and my question is, I'm looking for this lovely woman from yes. Mississippi State, and then now yes. everybody's gone, or all the people who were that, who are provided that race to me. They, they left. And I'm like, where the hell is everybody going? Mm-hmm. Like, where do people from Oakland going? People from San Francisco mm-hmm. moved to Oakland, people mm-hmm. from Oakland moved somewhere. Where's everybody
3: going? Like, I want, I want to know where the communities that communities
1: of color, war communities, where the hell are they being pushed out to? Because mm-hmm. I think we want to find them in order to like, I don't know. I just want to know what the hell. What the hell where's everybody going?
2: Oh, She's okay. so funny. Where like <laughs> <laughs> <I'm not sure
1: laughs> you? Because if they get spread out, then we are losing each the other, other, right? Yeah, the opposite community is to isolate yeah, people and spread everybody out, which is you know totally policies of the Green Party. Isolation oh, and community
2: where are they going? Where are our people? Where do they go? Oh, okay. Well,
6: wow,
0: that's good. the okay. some, You can be like this person.
1: I have to go. I just want to
0: get Don't not go When hold just because I want to introduce these three women.
1: who are
0: Who have joined us? These
2: are. Wait
0: these are these are the daughters who's a peace activist in our history. And it was kind of a friend of mine and a mentor of mine, Karen Talbot. And they're in town, and Meghna um, and Johan invited them to the preschool. But could you all stand up, please? Everybody would okay. like see you. Okay.
2: <laughs>
3: would, y'all,
1: would y'all
2: like to say something i'm starting oh, okay.
3: from like, this. <laughs> yeah, oh, this yeah no it's
1: just it's a, really inspiring to see all this activity and all these wonderful people here and all the great ideas and yeah. i feel so welcome here
5: and oh, hey. I, I hope hey. we'll be able to oh.
1: come back again yeah. soon or get together somewhere else or whatever this is this is really beautiful oh. it's really touched me i've been having some hard times and this is kind of lifting me up so. well we meet every
3: saturday so. <laughs> <laughs> i'm
1: uh sonia i talked
3: to yeah. you i yes.
1: uh, i used to be a teacher in public schools in, in michigan um that's a whole story
3: uh, what's going on there but i just as a teacher i just really enjoyed listening to all of you and I enjoy the manner in which you discuss things, so respectful. You give others a chance to express themselves, even if they're slow or <laughs> emotional or whatever, that you give the space for that. And I think it's so important in education. Um,
1: and I, we came here because uh, I spent a year with the help of my sisters, going through my mother's papers, she passed some 20 years ago we were
5: yeah we were unable
3: to get through her papers for emotional reasons
2: and everything um
3: our mother uh we saw what our mother death had done um in her life and how much she gave to the for peace and for justice and uniting issues and um fighting uh, you know some difficult battles internationally mm-hmm. and as a woman. Mm-hmm. So it was hard for us to go through her papers.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, but we yeah. finally did. And um, we donated them to the Swarthmore oh, college. Wow. So it's oh. nearby. We were thinking about where's the best place for it because um, of her life, how much she gave. Um,
9: died penniless and struggled herself so much, um, which was part of the whole international scene and the world scene, uh, what we
3: were going through in the world. So um, anyway, I hope that uh, as young people here interested in in these issues, you'll have a chance to look through them and maybe do something with them. Um, For me, I wanted to do something with it, but it's,
1: too emotional
0: it's it's kind of hard to I dig do it. yeah yeah because yeah. i knew your mother
2: mm-hmm.
0: and i worked with her and i know sometimes y'all must have felt where's our mother yeah i know that <laughs> but uh, let me tell you um karen talbot uh and it's so good that her papers are good. I, I know what you mean you know how difficult because I know when my mother died, I couldn't go in the house yeah. for five years. Mm-hmm. But I know how that is. But um you know, I, I just hope you all meet people who can tell you more about your mother mm-hmm. than you all even know, the type of person she was. Mm-hmm. I saw with the way she worked with Roma Chandra. Mm-hmm. And just She was on fire, Mm -hmm. total dedication. Mm -hmm. And I feel that part of the reason I'm like I am is because of your mother Mm -hmm. and the experience I had with her. And just, um, she was really, I mean, just a decent person, you know, not hard to get along with. I mean, I don't think you guys could even imagine how she was and Mm -hmm. because she was dealing with everything from the anti-apartheid movement mm-hmm. to nuclear disarmament in Europe, and then with the collapse of the Soviet Union, everybody gets pulled,
2: yeah, the oh, rug yeah. is pulled out,
0: where you're you know, were you assuming something and then it's not there anymore, right, right. so. Well, yeah, that, it, it
3: really
1: hits home to me when you were talking about um, how big
2: it is yeah,
1: to try to organize a party. And mm-hmm. and how and then in connection with that, how vicious uh, the uh, opposition is.
0: That's right. And, um, it's
1: and
3: they so, knew
0: they knew who your mother yeah. was because she's on that global scale, and you know the CIA. And she, and, she was
3: uh, spoke. She spoke as a woman that was from the United States. Absolutely. Which was a big deal, you know, because of our history and our role mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, I just wanted something done with her papers, oh, yeah. not so much, well,
1: but I love her, I loved her, you know,
2: yeah, she's know. my mother, <laughs> but, I, I, but it's bigger I, I, than that I
3: mean, because of what she stood for, what, what, because of what the World Peace Council stood for, it's something that we need again, yeah, you know, desperately. desperately. And yeah. so
1: we need, by remembering these things, I think it helps uh, uh, future generations, yes. you know, yeah. so. And thank you for inviting us. I, <laughs> yeah. I I found you guys because I was doing
3: a little research. Um, where I met romish We all met Romish. Wow. Yeah. I
1: I lived in Helsinki. She did too. Oh, um, oh, okay.
3: Yeah. And I then went to Moscow. and went to school there. So um, so you know when I was doing some research a little bit with my mother's papers, I. Google <laughs> and I found Raju, you know, oh. the article about you know, <laughs> Romish. Yeah. Romish. It was just, it hit my heart, you know. It was um, wonderful to read that interpretation of Romish and his importance, and it just reminded me of the importance of the World Peace Council and what yeah. my mother did and others in the Peace Council. Can
4: I
0: asked because I was, t- I tried to tell them about Romish and the kind of guy he was, yeah. you know. He was just always moving and always. <laughs>
2: he
3: was, but he was also very kind of, uh, you know, humble. He had humility yes. with him, within himself and a single-purposeness of, yeah. of
1: fighting for um, our, you know, against imperialism and and for internationalism. And, you know, um, yeah,
9: he's a wonderful man. Yeah, Just a wonderful, uh, yeah, I don't
3: know. You could tell when you're buying him that he was the leader, a real leader, you know, wasn't uh, someone that would brag or, you know,
2: (laughs) he was a wonderful man. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, I heard that when he was in jail,
1: I think he was in jail in India because he was fighting, I guess, for the the Indian
3: movement.
1: He was jailed and he, um, he actually organized the bars and mm-hmm. radicalized them, <laughs> and like, <laughs> that, that that's the kind of guy he was. So I thought that was pretty cool. That, that's the one thing I remember about Uncle But We always called him Uncle Romish. No, you did it! <laughs> I, you know, that.
2: I mean,
1: I, You know, it's hard to speak because there's so much, uh, you know, and inside, you know. there's so much you want to say. So I I, I I don't know, I have
0: nothing more I guess to oh, say, okay. say at this point, but Well, maybe maybe if you all could come back when we celebrate the tenth oh, anniversary yeah. it, oh, so. yeah. maybe, yeah. Because it would be good because peace is such a central part of our thinking and what we do, yeah. Yeah. if you all could come and talk about Rome Mission. And Karen and the World Peace Council would be very. Yeah,
3: Where do y'all live way? Well? Well, I'm a, I'm in the West Coast, but I could do like the you know you got your internet. internet. Oh, Zoom, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm in Detroit. I feel like Detroit's my home. I was born right in Detroit. Right oh,
1: we should have boot nannies in our house.
3: While <laughs> 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 uh, these people come you to you our house talk, and are jamming boot and boot all kinds <laughs> 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 of. Oh, <don't> <laughs> Yes, a lot of people over, you play music basically.
2: Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I about the yeah. it's I've thing. heard of
3: it, but I never thought yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 oh, cool. think we all three of us feel, even though you know, where was our mother half the time, and she didn't make the cookies and you know all that. Although <laughs> she did, that she was the president of the PTA
1: when we were oh. kids.
3: We <laughs> were a like troop, and but that you know that wasn't when we were little, and I you know. But we were fortunate because of our parents too. Our father, our father was um, a UAW unionist in um, Detroit. Angela oh, Daytos,
8: what was his name?
1: Angela Daytos. Angela Daytos, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, he worked. Yeah. And, and our stepfather, her father <coughs> was uh, Steve Talbot, an anthropologist. Oh yeah, yeah, I know
3: him, I know him. Native American
1: studies too, passed a fairly recently. So his uh, yeah, yeah. students <laughs> no. occupied, Alcatraz,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
1: oh. right? yeah. Yeah. So I, I just recently read one of his articles about Alcatraz. So
3: yeah, it, we were fortunate growing up at that time. What's going on? What's going on? Well, <laughs> I want to say something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh now everyone, yeah. no, everyone, please. Oh no, no it's <laughs> just like you know, listening to free scooters. He was like, y'all have so much emotion. And I was like, yeah, that's what, they, that's what these, <laughs> these people do. This is what this group does. You. <laughs> they, they welcome you and they make you feel emotional and stuff. Yeah. And that's one thing like, I like to see uh, the school. And you know, when we talk about it, because I wrote about something that I was like, some, so far, the world was like, we're lying on machines and machines are doing everything, yeah. all the work. And like sooner or later, it's like people want to replace us with machine. And I was like, well, I mean, that's like fine and good, but like the one thing a machine doesn't have that you, know, you have is emotion, heart, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. all feelings. Mm-hmm. And so, like, replacing someone with actual feelings, heart, and emotion mm-hmm. with something that doesn't, yeah. can't feel, can't, you know, have emotion is hard. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be. Harder for it to like you can't you can't have common sense with a robot mm-hmm. a robot just, a robot just knows what its computer is telling it what what it's going to do mm-hmm. it's not like you know humans so that's why I feel like you know we probably more in the free school more members more younger members I I you like because like people don't understand like there's certain things that are precious and takes time Mm
5: -hmm.
3: and like you're learning something new that you don't even really know about Mm -hmm. it's always like something new it's like I haven't been going here long but I was like coming here is like you know, it's really easy to catch up with what's been happening mm-hmm. and what's going on, and it's easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And it's like, right, you said Americans are mean. <laughs> 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 like, you my Like, you Like, all I hear, like, <laughs> before I left school, like, all I heard was, like, yo, we all off in a crib or something. What y'all going to do? I'm like, I'm about to go to my third class. I'm going to go to my third class. <laughs> I cannot talk to y'all right now.
2: i to my
3: You get to meet new people, and it's always someone new. It's always someone new here, Mm -hmm. and like it's good to like get different opinions, different emotions, and like Mm -hmm. that, like. And you know, some the free school memories like here, like they can last for like a lifetime. Right. So, like, you know, yes. have... <laughs> <That's
1: just>, <laughs> you, like, you say hello, I I
3: like, oh my like, yes, I know. Expression.
2: I
1: know. Okay, bye. And
3: it's like, so even if you know, people do think you machines are, you know, all superior and you know they have all the knowledge like it's certain questions that are beyond a computer mm-hmm. and answers you can't get from a computer you have to look yeah. at a book you have to look at documents papers and there's certain memories you cannot have with a computer and exactly. it's feelings feeling that the computer is not going to feel mm-hmm. like, I wonder how they're going to replace therapists on the yeah. like, How you Yeah. Going to? How are you doing, doing that. Right, teachers. Quarters, they right, or teachers. to? teachers. Or They're going to give the yeah. longest answer as ever. When it's like a
2: really easy solution
3: to the answer. You will not have to describe everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. yeah. It's really going to be hard because... Like there's certain jobs that need emotion and needs affection. Yeah, like definitely. counseling the school that needs emotion and affection so you can understand the students. Mm-hmm. A robot is not gonna be able to understand yeah, a 15 year old girl brain. or something. Yeah. Definitely. He's having a mental breakdown every day. Even yes. if a robot is not gonna be able to feel that. Mm-hmm. But it's like, cause then and this thing with um the like higher power, that's what we say in my school. It's like the higher power. Mm-hmm. Mm, and, <laughs> um, so like, the higher power is love. <laughs> <laughs> you can say, like the higher power is like, you know, like, probably in England, the higher power would be like the king, queen. Oh, right. and like, mm-hmm. here is like yeah. the government, you know, the president, we call it the higher power oh, in high school. Mm. And we like, like, the higher power mm. is.
0: Well, Jalen, I, I yeah. think because it's 2 o'clock, you yeah. uh, so it, honestly, Serafina has to go to work, yeah. oh. and we have to uh, that's leave that's for everybody, I
2: mean, this has been wonderful.